This is another Red FM podcast. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, for more podcasts, check out redextra.ie. It's full of great Red FM content. Get involved in the conversation. Text 0868104106. Now, the amount of money that's been spent now on uh, fuel, I'm talking about petrol and diesel primarily at this time of the year. Uh, but when you break it down, as the mail does on its front and inside pages, who's fooling who? Who's zooming who? Who's cotton who? Because the state is making a fortune in tax and excise and VAT. And the higher the price of petrol and diesel go, the more the exchequer takes. They're taking 300 million euro a month in tax from the fuel that people are burning in their cars, whether it's petrol or diesel or home heating oil. It's insane. I mean, they break it down in detail. I'm not going to bore you because I'll be coming back to it later on with numbers, but it needs to be said. If you look at, um, say for instance, if you, if you go for 180 the price may be at the pump for petrol in April. Say 180 a litre, right? 38 cent to that goes to the state and the exchequer and excise duty. Nearly a tenner of it. Another tenner on top of that goes in carbon tax. Two euro goes on the climate levy Nora. Then there's even a thing called a better energy level. And VAT then, the end of it, is 34 euro. So the total tax per litre is actually um, a total of eight, nearly 84 cent. Uh, which is close enough on 50% on the price of the litre in tax. I mean, wouldn't you think they could do something about that if they're talking about, you know, oh, there's going to be rationing to come and fuel rationing and, and stuff like that. So that makes for scary reading when you see, okay, like they say now with regards to prices in Ireland that we're all being scalped left, right and centre. Remember the old term, rip-off republic? I wonder whether we're back to that. Like the star this morning says, it's cheaper to fly to Spain now than to get a hotel, say, in places like, like Dublin or Cork. In fact, if you look at the prices of hotels in Cork, across the weekend. It would frighten the life out of you. I've got a breakdown on different hotel prices. I'll come back to it a little later on this morning. But that's the story with petrol and diesel. And of course, it's continuing to increase. Um, I actually haven't been looking at four quarts. I thought I might get a chance to yesterday, but I didn't. But I'd say we're certainly well and truly past the two now. Uh, I see BlackRock has got 204 for diesel and 218 for petrol. I don't know whether that's the super duper unleaded you know, the 218 is just the regular stuff. Oh, my God almighty. Somebody reporting in from Castletown Bear, 212 for diesel and 224 for petrol. For nearly 50% of that, somewhere in the region of 47% of it, is tax, VAT and excise. So remember that. Electric cars in Ireland, Dublin, Dublin, Dublin. You can see why. If they can get the range better and better, as was everybody ultimately will have an electric car. But other prices then, you know, the small little ones that add to the death by a thousand cuts. Air make the papers today because they're increasing prices to all of their customers. This would be residential and small businesses and the likes. And of course, you might have seen in the papers over the past few days and on this program over the past few weeks, the cost of trying to rent a car in Ireland. It's insane. Sane. Um, I, I just can't understand it. But the sun this morning picks up on a woman who wanted to rent a car at Dublin Airport for a week and she thought she was being quoted in lira, but it was actually in euro. 18,000 euro for a week. That's not a mistake. That's all to do with supply and demand and what people would pay. But nobody would pay 18,703 euro and 50 cent for a week for a car. You could, 
you could buy one for that and a damn good one for uh, at that. Just one other thing on fuel. Anybody that's near the border countries, counties are heading across the border uh, to get their petrol. And many of the papers break down the cost of petrol in Ireland and indeed the gross, you know, we're not great here, not as bad as the likes of the Germans or the uh, Denmark as the dearest petrol by all accounts, but they break it down uh, country by country across the European Union. We're not alone uh, suffering the pain here. But don't, don't you think it's always amazing that when prices go up, they're quick to put it up. But when the prices are supposed to come down, I mean, the price of crude oil dropped, I think it was like $20 a barrel at one stage uh, during COVID. <laughs> never passed, they never passed any of that on at the pumps. So the user never got the benefit of when they drop. Now, uh, the father of uh, Santina Cawley was in court yesterday. I am, of course, talking about Michael Cawley, who was before Judge Olin Kelleher. Uh, He assaulted um, Karen Harrington on a bus uh, uh, at Merchant's Quay, threw her to the ground and kicked her repeatedly. Now, Harrington at the time was out on bail. She had been charged and was awaiting the murder trial of uh, Santina Cawley at the time. So, uh, before the court yesterday, and I will go into this in more detail with Ralph Regal at the Independence, I want to say some more, more more of a fact makes the papers today. He got a uh, a fully suspended ten month uh, prison sentence for that yesterday. So more on that in a few minutes' time. Of course, the state of our our, our health crisis. There's always been a health crisis. Uh, it kind of ebbs and flows a little bit, but it's never good. It's always open to criticism and disbelief. Really, when you see sixty three patients on beds and trolleys uh, at the CUH, worst in the country actually. Uh, the INMO have come out and said now at this stage we should be treating the trolley crisis like we treat the airport crisis according to the nurses union that um, you know there was an awful lot more uh, talk about it an awful lot more effort being put into trying to get people on airplanes than through, through A&E and into our hospital system but CUH have now come up and have asked the public uh, to explore all available options before actually coming to the emergency department and the COH is saying that people will experience long delays uh, and that they should contact their GP or South Doc if their needs are not urgent. So you had 63 on trolleys according to the INMO's uh, trolley watch yesterday. Papers also this morning do talk about the backlog regarding passports and what have you. What they're doing now is um, there's not so much need now for the HSE's contact tracing staff for COVID and what have you. So they're moving those over to the passport office to try and drill into more of the passport delays. And a story that we dealt with very much on the air yesterday, of course, is uh, our relationship with alcohol and drugs or any addictive addictive substance. Red Tops this morning break down the stats that we had on air yesterday morning. There's been a 170 percent increase in the number of young people treated for cocaine use in this country in the last 10 years. Um, You know, uh, booze is still a major problem. Don't get me wrong in that regard. But cocaine now has become so commonplace uh, of an evening out or any kind of social gathering, it would scare the life out of you. And you know one thing that's very interesting? Cocaine use amongst young women has skyrocketed, apparently, according to the Red Tops today. And there's a fear uh, over Coke's toxic impact uh, on the young. Uh, it could trigger a tidal wave of problems, uh, cocaine abuse or use or abuse, uh, including anxiety, self-harm and, and suicide. There's a very sad report making the papers today um, of uh, the young 11-year-old girl, Maya Cirillo, who gave evidence by video yesterday to the US Congress uh, regarding the shooting at her school, the Robb Elementary School. Um, and she detailed to the Congress how the gunman uh, burst into the classroom with an assault rifle. But she says just before that, uh, she said that, um, uh, that her teacher got an email and then moved to lock the door. 
The teacher turned to the students and told them, go hide. Uh, he then, the gunman, walked into the classroom. This is very upsetting even to hear. He walked up to my teacher. He told my teacher good night and shot her in the head. He shot some of my classmates, she says. Um, she said the students hid behind backpacks and others hid behind the teacher's desk. He shot my friend next to me um, and I thought that he would come back to the room and shoot me. So Maya, um, I hate mentioning this because people will find it upsetting. She took blood from her friend and rubbed it over herself so that she would appear dead. And then she called emergency services. I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking, the tragedy of it. And then, of course, we heard yesterday the story out of Germany that makes the papers today. This driver, careered into pedestrians, uh, left uh, leaving a teacher dead uh, and her pupils among 15 people badly injured. Now, he's been taken into custody. Apparently, they found some sort of uh, suicide note or some confession note in his car, by all accounts. So that's the world we live in these days. It's not all doom and gloom, incidentally. There are some happy, clappy stories making the papers today. Joe Kerrigan has a beauty in the echo. I mean, she's been talking a lot about Chester cake and chocolate slices on, on, on Lisa recently. I love these kind of stories. She's been talking about the old horse troughs around Cork City, and she's got some gorgeous photographs of some of them, including the horse trough down um, around uh, the... Actually, I don't have the photographs of them here in front of me, but one of them certainly would be the horse trough down uh, around King's Terrace. There's another one, of course, that I know of. Isn't there one over by Mar- over by the Market Tavern as well? Not to mention, ju- not just the horse troughs, but the dog troughs as well. But she's got a photograph of one of them. And it, she says, a horse drinking from a trough in Cork City in the 1920s. But can you identify where the photograph was taken? And I'll be damned if I can work out where it is. I mean, it's just an incredible photograph. So I don't know whether you'll be able to see this online, but if you're picking up a copy of the Echo today, there's some great co- black and whites from the 1920s of Cork. Um, Cork horse troughs. Back in the day, of course, everything was delivered and all transport was by horse and cart. And here's a one for you, because God knows we've given away enough of them and probably sent an awful lot of them to secondhand shops and I would imagine recycled and just binned others. I'm talking about old VHS films, you know, the old video cassettes. Apparently, uh, they're huge business when it comes to reselling at least some of them. Uh, film fans are buying up some of the real big VHS cassettes from back in the day. Some of them from the early 80s. Like, it's an incredible story that makes the sun today where they're saying collectors offering big money for Back to the Future. A VHS copy of Back to the Future, which could make 23,500 euro. Are you serious? Another one that people will pay big money for, up to 20 grand, is for the 1984 release of Star Wars A New Hope. Or a VHS copy of Jaws, Ghostbusters, or Indiana Jones. I can see people yeah, literally uh, heading to the attic uh, or cupboards or presses digging out old VHS copies. Because if you've got yourself a Back to the Future or a Jaws or a Ghostbusters and Indiana Jones, you're in the money big time. The Neil Prendeville Show, Cork's number one talk show. Pure Cork on Red FM. Okay, text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 0818104106. Let's go straight to the courts and the court reports from yesterday. As I mentioned, uh, the father of murdered two-year-old toddler Santina Colley uh, was yesterday given a ten-month suspended sentence. He pleaded guilty to assault, causing harm to a woman. Um, the woman, of course, uh, being. Uh, the woman who was ultimately found guilty of his daughter's murder, Karen Harrington. Uh, and he was in court yesterday and got a suspended sentence. Ralph Regal was in court. Southern correspondent with the Irish Independent joins me by phone. Ralph, good morning. 
Good morning, Ian. Thank you so much for, for taking the call. So this goes back to an incident in January of 2021 when uh, Michael Cawley was walking along Merchant's Quay and spotted Karen Harrington on a bus. Is that the case? That's right, Ian. And I suppose the two important things to point out that this, that this incident happened 18 months after Mr. Cawley found his daughter, Santina, uh, with critical injuries uh, in an apartment at Elderwood. And it was the apartment of Karen Harrington. The little girl was found there in July of 2019 and she had suffered 53 separate internal and external injuries and sadly doctors just couldn't save her. So at the time on January the 26th, 2021, uh, Michael Cawley was walking down uh, Merchant's Quay and he happened to spot Karen Harrington on a bus uh, about to go home. And what's important to stress as well is the fact that it was very much an impromptu act. It wasn't planned. He didn't know that she was going to be there. Um, his counsel, Frank Buttermore, pointed out that he was walking by. He saw her on the bus and he just suffered a momentary uh, loss of control mm. that the woman charged with the murder of his little girl was there in front of him. So he got on the bus, he grabbed her, he threw her to the ground and he kicked her repeatedly while she was on the ground. Now, uh, Judge Olin Kelleher was told um, by Sergeant Pat Lyons that uh, Karen Harrington did not suffer any serious or debilitating injuries. She did receive medical treatment and she was treated for soft tissue injuries to her chest, which were believed to have been um, inflicted as a result of the repeated kicks that Mr. Cawley had inflicted on her. Now, Mr. Cawley left the scene. He then rang the guardie and made himself available to the guardie for questioning about the circumstances of what had just happened. And Frank Buttermer, in, in, in submissions to the court on behalf of his client, said that it had been a momentary lapse of control that uh, Mr. Cawley was under tremendous strain at the time. He was still grieving the loss of his little girl and the woman that he believed, as it transpired correctly, uh, was responsible for murdering his daughter was there in front of him. It was also pointed out to the court uh, that Mr. Cawley was very upset that there, uh, there had been continued delays in the staging of the murder trial uh, in which Karen Harrington was mm-hmm. to answer charges over the death of Santina. Now, this was, of course, the height of the COVID-19 yeah. pandemic. Was, he all, was it also th- said in court, pardon me for interrupting, but, 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 but did he also say that, that he, he also did what he did because Karen Harrington was planning to, to plead not guilty? Well, that was certainly what was the point that was made was that the fact that she was pleading not guilty yeah. to the murder yeah. of his daughter was another cause of the stress yeah. Yeah. that he was feeling. There was also an explanation that he was, you know, he admit there was medical issues uh, that were impacting uh, and that since the incident, uh, Mr. Cawley had received medical treatment and that he was also receiving counselling for the circumstances in which his daughter was murdered. And just one other point, because you said that after the attack on uh, Karen Harrington on the bus, you said that he he rang the guardie because I saw court reports is that he walked to the Bridewell Garda station. Yeah, he made contact. Now, my understanding is that he rang them and yeah. said that he informed the Garda of what had happened and that he was available for interview. Gotcha. And it was pointed out to the court that he had cooperated at, at all times with Garda who were investigating the incident. Uh, Mr. Bottomer said that, you know, obviously it shouldn't have happened. He said that his, he explained how his client had become enraged and had lost control. But the judge noted that Mr. Cawley had a number of previous convictions. He had a conviction for very, very serious assault back in 2004, in which he received a three-year prison sentence, and that was from Kilrush in County Clare. And Judge Kelleher said that the courts are there to deal with justice. And he said people cannot take the law into their own hands, no matter what 
the background or no matter what the circumstances. He described Mr. Colley as a violent man. And he said it was Mr. Colley was clearly a man that was willing to engage in violence. But he said that given the overall circumstances, he was not going to impose a custodial sentence. He imposed a 10-month prison sentence, but agreed to suspend it for two years once Mr. Colley entered into a bond to be of good behaviour. And I suppose the other interesting element of what happened yesterday, Neil, was the fact that um, the case that had come up about a month ago, and it was adjourned on the basis that um, the, the injured party, Karen Harrington, should be afforded an opportunity to submit a victim impact statement Did to the she? court, as is the right of every victim. But in this particular case, what happened was a document was brought to court and Mr. Buttermer said that it had strayed far beyond what a victim impact statement was supposed to be. And both the state and the uh, defence agreed that the judge should read this document in chambers and make his own decision on it. And uh, Judge Kelleher agreed that the, the statement had gone beyond what a victim impact statement was intended to achieve. And he said on that basis, it wasn't going to be read out in court and that he would ignore the irrelevant parts of the statement, uh, block it from his mind in imposing sentencing, but he would take into account the bits that were relevant to the matters before the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did say that he was obviously a very violent man. Um, uh, I accept his guilty plea, but he cannot take the law into his own hands and he must pay the consequences for that. Probably people wondering, what are the consequences really if you uh, get a suspended sentence? But, you know, maybe that's, that's for another day. Uh, if you were to uh, not keep the peace and not be of good behaviour, what happens then? Does that 10-month uh, sentence get uh, um, reinvigorated, if you like, and he, he would go to jail then? Um, it's certainly that that option is open to the state. And, you know, we've had a number of cases that have come up, say, in the last couple of court sessions where the state has applied for, for you know, suspended sentence to be reactivated. Reactivated because, is the word, my apologies. Yes, yeah. be, because the individual involved had not adhered to the terms of the suspension or had not adhered to the terms of the bond. So in this particular case, Mr. Colley has given his word that he will be of good behaviour for two years. And if that isn't the case, then the option, it's not automatic, but it's certainly that option is open to the state to have the matter brought back before the courts. Okay. And how, how, is, um, uh, how is Karen Harrington doing? Is she, she's in, in jail in Limerick, I believe. Isn't that the case? It, it, that's right, yes. Lim, Limerick is the primary um, uh, facility for female inmates um, in, in, in Munster. And I suppose another interesting point to, to, to make, Neil, is the fact that it, it emerged yesterday that Karen Harrington has begun the process of appealing her conviction. Now, she received, she was convicted on May the 16th by unanimous verdict of the 11-member Central Criminal Court jury of the murder of Santina Colley in July of 2019. And in the Republic, a murder conviction brings an automatic life sentence. So we understand that Karen Harrington has commenced the process of challenging her conviction, but no date has been set for when that will come before the Court of Appeal. Okay, well, that will be the next one to watch. Appreciate you taking the call as always, Ralph. Much advice to you. Ralph Regal is on the correspondent with the Irish Independent. Text 0868104106. Calls on the way. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818 104 Red FM. Text 0868104106. There are many people in Cork that uh, I admire, but one of them that I admire the most and respect the most is the great Mary Crilly. And today she receives a very special award, uh, the Freedom of the City. She joins other women like Aidy Roach and Mary McLeese and Sonia O'Sullivan and Mary Robinson and Mrs. Maure- uh, Maureen Curtis Black uh, and others then. They're the women. And others then like uh, Neil Tobin, Michael D. Higgins, uh, Chan Maya, Sean Ogue, Michael Flatley, Roy Keane, John Hume, 
Jack Lynch, John F. Kennedy, lots, lots more like that. It's a very, very special award and it will allow the one and only Mary Crilly uh, from today to apparently graze her sheep in Bishop Lucy Park. Mary, good morning. Good morning. I didn't know whether I could graze the sheep or not. I did pick up a few small noddy sheep in the shop yesterday to have them in the car. (laughs) If you want, you can go to a you can go to a farmer's mart and buy a dozen sheep now, and nobody can can say boo to you. (laughs) Congratulations! How does it feel? It feels weird. It feels strange. I feel unreal. I haven't slept all night. I'm like a child going to school for the first day, um, full of excitement and anxiety and all sorts of things. Um, I just think it's incredible. And, you know, I would have thought, you know, the centre is 40 years. I would have thought maybe we, the centre would be given a small award um, for 40 years. But, my God, this was never even in my imagination, in my head. So I'm just blown away by it. And I'm blown away by the support and the amount of people have used the centres over the years who've contacted us saying they really appreciate it, they really feel acknowledged by the whole thing, um, which is what we wanted. You know, uh, you I know, know 40, so it was around about the early 80s then, 82, that the rape crisis centre started. Is that Was that around the time when you came to Cork first? I came to Cork in 1977. Right. And the, what brought you down? The, I got married. Good for you. Um, and the person I was married to was offered a job either in Cork or I think some, I forget where else it was, but the deal was, we, you know, we, we moved to Cork. So that relationship didn't last too long. Right. And then I had two children. I had one born in 1980 and the other born in 1982 or 1981. It would kill me if I get the day strong. Um, <laughs> I did, know, that, I did that yesterday. Now, I did that yesterday. Me. I turned around to my daughter and I got her age wrong. <laughs> yeah. So they were really small, you know, tiny when um, the rape crisis centre was starting up in 82. We launched the helpline in 1983. So for me, it was like something very different I'd never done before. I'd never been involved in any group. I hadn't been to college. Um, you know, it was totally out of my my knowledge or my um, area of expertise I think of a lot of people but it was setting up I was asked to kind of get involved and I wouldn't have given myself long at that stage because I really felt I didn't know what use I'd be mm. and I couldn't look ahead and think God I'd still be there 40 years on I really but I am so grateful that that's the road my life took because I've met so amazing people um, over the years I really have and who really inspired me and helped me kind of grow in my own life in different ways. Any ideas the amount of people that you dealt with and helped over those 40 years? Well, we just came across a figure the other day because we do keep stats, we just keep details of um, people who come in, not names, addresses, or anything like that in case anybody is ever worried. And just so far, there's been over 10,000 have used the centre since the start of it. And that's people, not just ones who would have rang looking for information, that's people who came in to use the service, to ask about support, to kind of come for counselling either for a couple of sessions or for a year or two years or however long they needed. So that's, 10, that's some number. That's yeah. some number. And I suppose in but the, I mean, in the earlier years, primarily of, women, but that is changing now with regards to sexual violence, isn't it? It is. I mean, we always see men who are abused as children, but we see more and more men who maybe rape now as adults because, I mean, as we've always said, the rape is about power and control. There's nothing really to do with, um, you know, your sexuality. It's to do with somebody wanting control and power over you, and they do it in the way they see to humiliate you the most, the most and where they feel they've more control and more power and for, you know, abusing men where men might think it's just going to be I'm going to get my head kicked in unfortunately they're getting sexually assaulted yeah, as well and yeah. that is the reality yeah. and we have to be open to this because the people who come in to us want to say I have a really good lo- lovely husband at home um, I can't be intimate with him 
and I want help with that. So they're coming in because they want some hope that their days might change, that they might have a better time, a better life. So we can just be kind of a backup for them in the intermediate, but their family are the people who are really important to them, who they really want to make changes for, who they really want to live out their life in the best way they can. With. Well, here's the, today's the day that uh, you will receive that uh, honour, and the Lord Mayor said it's in recognition of your tireless work in the area of sexual violence, domestic violence, sex trafficking, female sexual genital mutilation and, and stalking. It have been sea changes, though, over the past 40 years. I was reading an, an article in The Echo back in the day, up until 1990, when rape in marriage was legal. So you would have had 10 years, 82 to 90, before that law changed. But even since that last change, there's only been a handful of women um, or anybody in marital arrangements who have brought a case to court. There's only been about five convictions for marital rape because even though there is legislation about consent, um, it's still very hard to prove that somebody in a relationship with somebody didn't consent on that night. I suppose what I'm I'm saying is in your earlier days, there was so much that needed to be fixed and put right. And and also people didn't talk. Not at all. And even definition of rape needs to be changed, needs to be expanded and changed. And people didn't talk. I mean, I really admire the people who came out. Like, say, I was talking to Lavinia Kerouac yesterday on the phone. It would have been 1990 when she, or 30 years ago, when she spoke about her situation when she was on Jerry Ryan 30 years ago. And I mm. think that blew open stuff for everybody. But that's 30 years ago. And some things have changed, but there's a lot more to do. There's a lot more to do around victim blame. There's a lot more to do about looking at the reality of sexual violence. But one thing I do see change in me, which is great, even though um, people might still be blamed in some way for what happened to them, they're being believed. A lot more young people are coming in, we see from 14 up, where and I would have seen a few years ago where they felt the family weren't believing them because they just couldn't believe this could really happen. Now they're believing them. They might still blame them for maybe being drunk or being out somewhere, but they're believing them. And that's a massive change. You know, I know what you're saying. I just, you were talking about belief there, actually, talking about domestic violence and what have you. The Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial recently, of course, Amber Heard would contest and also her legal team would contest that it's pushed the movement way back, that women will remain silent because they fear they won't be believed, you know? I think, I think that trial just shows there's more work to be done. Mm. I mean, I would feel very positive, especially about living in Ireland and living in Cork, because there are main major legal changes. Yeah, we need to kind of keep talking. We need to keep chipping away. We need to keep knocking on doors. But absolutely not will it put us back. It's just acknowledging this is where we're at and there's more to do. And are the courts I mean, better now? At, sorry, go ahead, Mary. The, the courts are, are better, but there's still kind of a long, too long of a waiting time. You're still waiting maybe four or five years for some of these something to come to court. You're still going with somebody maybe on three or four occasions where it's been adjourned, where it's been cancelled, where it's not happening, and then it's back and back and back and back. And you are, the average wait now seems to be three or four years. And do you have people um, who still say, do you still have people say, I'm not going to go to court because I'll be dealt with in the court as if I'm actually the uh, on trial? Absolutely. But what I would ask everybody to do, because a lot of people would feel that maybe they want to report, I would ask them to contact the Protective Services Unit in Angsley Street or in West Cork or North Cork, where they are, because there's a team of guards who just work with sexual violence and they will meet you. They will speak with you. They won't look for a statement until you're ready, but they will give you the information you need in a very thorough way so Mm -hmm. you can make your own decision then what you need to do, not by not kind of by default. Mm, well, fair play to you. I heard in the, the news at nine o'clock that uh, are you contemplating who's going to take over from you? Well, I have to say, I'm 73 years time. 
Um, and like at the moment, because of the way I've been in the centre, and that was my choice. So I do, I do a lot of stuff. I do a lot of the media. I do a lot of the schools. I do a lot of the court compliment. I do some satellite calls out. So I don't want the centre to fall apart if I walk. So I'm working on a three-year strategic plan to kind of put people in place so that in three years' time I can look at say, well, you know. I say, but I only want to do the campaigning or I say, I'll uh, just do the schools in that kind of way that the centre is really in good hands. I've absolutely no concerns about the counselling in there because that's very strong yeah. and very, very much there and very placed there with the supervision with the councils we have in there are great. So I have no concerns about that. But I'd love the rest to be kept up, the education, the training, yeah. the awareness raising, the campaign. So, yeah, I do really need to have a good look and put the house in order do in you, the next three years. Do you, ever actually, do you ever actually take a break? I hear you don't even take holidays, no? Huh? <laughs> do you know, as I'd also said to somebody, like, if you're at a party, don't come near me because I just corner you and talk <laughs> at naught about this. Um, I, I don't really. And my daughters who are in their 40s now could testify to that. I don't. But, you know, it's fine. I mean, over the years, I have got low. I have got depressed. I have got panic attacks. Um, and I have felt quite isolated at times. But overall, you know... I Is that because of the nature of your work, do you think? I think it can be. I think the... You know, when you see somebody who's in a depth of despair and or you meet a woman who might say, I'm concerned about my child, I think when she's... Um, or he or she is with a partner there is abuse going on and they might know what's going on and the courts were for whatever reason um, decide to give access and you just feel their despair so sometimes yeah I do feel that I don't how, do you, how over the years then have you managed to you know look after your own because you're carrying a lot of these stories these horror stories that you hear how do you protect yourself from that I don't know if I do or not, but I think what I found really helped me over the years was when I found my voice. Because you know when we all started, we weren't trained to do media, we weren't trained to do talks, we weren't trained to do anything. But when I started speaking out about stuff, that really helped me unload it. Um, so that I wasn't keeping it in, I wasn't kind of saying I feel bad about this, or maybe this law or that law needs to be changed. And it was like you in the early days, even on... Uh, Pirate Radio, which I remember very well, um, giving us the voice, giving us the attention when nobody else did, and that's made a huge difference. So for me, it is kind of, you know, speaking out and being able to unload in that kind of way. And do you know what really makes a difference to me? When I see somebody in town, um, like I saw a guy in town there recently with his partner, and he looked so happy. And when we met him in the centre a few years ago, he was miserable. And that gives me a lift because that's what it's about. Not kind of, oh, look, we're great, look what we've done. It's just kind of, God, you know, you only have one go at this life. And, you know, if you can help people live it as best they can, you know, that's a privilege. What will today, what will actually happen now today? You'll go to City Hall, is that it? Yeah. Well, I think I'm being brought for um, lunch to Kingsley Hotel and then brought to City Hall where there'll be, um, Paula Meehan is going to read a poem. She's written a poem for the event. Um, Karen Underwood is going to blast and out a few songs at that stage. Um, I'll be presented this with this amazing silver casket yeah. and um, a script and then there'll be a reception in the Millennium Hall. So it'll just be amazing. That's and what I'm really trying to do is kind of um, enjoy it because you know when you're involved in the middle of something <laughs> you get too caught up um, making sure everything's alright but I'm just going to really enjoy it you're an incredible you're an incredible company aren't you you know Aidy Roach totally, Mary McAleese totally, Sonia totally, Mary Robinson totally. yeah. and, Mary, and you know Maureen Black who without Maureen Black we wouldn't have any um, citizens of ice centers we wouldn't have any legal aid so she was another amazing woman in, in starting something off from scratch so it is it's phenomenal to be part of it it's not, not something I ever would have 
imagined or envisaged. So I am so proud. I mean, like they say, I was born in Dublin, but I am, I'm a true Cork woman, I think. <laughs> We're glad you never went back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You stayed with Me us. Me too. Me and may, too. And may Me you stay too. with us for many years to come. Delighted for Thank you. you. Congratulations so on behalf of all of us. You're so, okay. um, you're so deserving of the freedom of Cork City. Have a great Thank day today so and savour every moment of it, Mary, right? Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Talk soon. Great, Mary Crilly. We will talk soon, of that you can be sure. Back after the break. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. And so are accident and emergencies are supposed to be just for that. Accidents and emergencies. But Anne says maybe another medical centre is required in Cork City for drunks clogging up and abusing the A&E. Surely the mercy and the CUH have stats available for the number of people attending at night just because of drink. That would merit a separate place for the likes of these people. So the genuine attendees at the A&E have the right not to be disturbed by these people. It's happening for too many years now. No thanks. Backing up figures is what is necessary here. Someone might listen and nurses' jobs might improve in A&D, says Anne. Um, well, I would imagine that somebody's out there because they're absolutely locked and incapable of looking after themselves. I'm not so sure that that would be deemed as an accident and emergency. So that's why people are talking about some kind of a drunk tank just for people like that to sober up. But Anne was there and found it quite sobering while there. She was uh, um, getting some, I believe, radiotherapy at the time. Anne, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Thanks so Again. much for taking the call. You were you were getting your last dose of treatment, were you? I was, yeah. I got the last dose now yesterday, thank goodness. Good. You're glad that's behind you then? I am. I mean, we're fighting it now a good few years, so hopefully this will keep it at bay another while. I hope so. I hope so. So thank yeah. you for taking my call, because while you were there, what did you see? Well, it wasn't the first time I saw it. Um, I saw it again last week and the week before, but there was approximately nine ambulances and two uh, emergency paramedic vehicles in a queue outside the emergency bay. And they were there for approximately 20 to 40 minutes each vehicle unloading their patients, waiting for them to be handed over inside in the department itself. Yeah, but if it's 20 to 40 minutes for each that's one... Delaying the, yeah, that's delaying an emergency then for the ambulance to go out again. Yeah, yeah. So the one yeah. behind the second ambulance and the third ambulance and the fourth ambulance, they're waiting substantially longer then? They are, yeah. They were all in the queue. So they were actually taking some of the patients out uh, by wheelchairs from the... We'll say there's a little roundabout area, a set-down area outside the Glendore building and there were ambulances parked up to there and they were taking people out on either ambulances or trolleys right around into the bay itself. Okay. And of course, we can't say how urgent or how much of an emergency those ambulances were, you know, because you don't know what, no, well, what was, was wrong with the people I, inside. Yeah, there was a good few patients now all week. I was seeing it, not elderly, uh, middle-aged, I'd say, going into the COVID uh, area. Oh, right. And so, that, yeah. that's, that's built, that area is still being used specifically for COVID, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is, yeah. A separate entrance, yeah. Oh, so that's interesting that you have people arriving by ambulance with COVID. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So must have the COVID, that, and they must have it bad if they're going to hospital then. Yeah, you could, see, you could see that they were really ill. You know, they were on oxygen, etc. <clears throat> so you could see they were really ill. Wow. So we can, we can see from that that uh, it hasn't gone away as such. No, no. 
No, not at all. Not at all. I've been up to radiotherapy now. It's five weeks and I'd be waiting outside before I'd go in and you can still see them going in. I'd be there for maybe 30 minutes outside the Glendor waiting to go in and in that duration there would be at least two going in through the COVID section every day. So eight or nine ambulances waiting at the bay, uh, clearly blocked up and clogging up everything because there are literally yeah. so many of them just waiting to get just the patients waiting. through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You, you haven't been through A&E though, have you? I was there, unfortunately, in uh, February. I had major surgery in January to remove two more tumours, one near the spine and one on the lung. And unfortunately, there was complications about a week after I coming home, so I was taken into A&E and it was like looking at a snippet on the news of a hospital in Yemen. It really? was so, so bad. Describe it to me, in what way? Well, you were, I walked into the waiting room and it was brilliant. There was only three before me and I went, oh, wow, this is wonderful. This was about 9 a.m. in the morning. Then I was triaged and the doctor, uh, the nurse at triage said, look, we'll try and get you under the... Um, oncology team because he said it's chaotic in there if you were to wait for the medical team there's people in here since 10 p.m last night and they haven't been seen yet and this was 9 13 the following morning so i was taken in putting into a cubicle the width of a trolley bed uh eventually i was put in a drip there was no room for the drip that was outside on the the, the corridor area the um, cubicle was so it, small yeah, it, it couldn't fit in. I couldn't fit anything in there, only myself. Um, if they were giving you tea, they kind of had to hand it to you on the bed. Every cubicle was full. Uh, there was a toilet, two toilets shared by about 200 people. Oh, my God. Of all ages. You had people with different infections, gastric infections, chest infections, you name it. There was elderly there that were absolutely hanging from tiredness and from thirst and hunger and um, what, did you hear them to, calling for water and things yeah yeah stopping sure. staff looking for something yeah. to eat yeah, yeah. You, I mean the nurses and doctors how they coped I do not know it's the medical team up there are second to none it's the management that are the main problem they're getting extra funding because the house hospital is cast as a centre of excellence because of all the specialities they cater for, but they can no longer cater for those specialities. So if they're not very careful, their extra funding will be taken off of them and the hospital will be going back to a general hospital. They can't cope with what uh, they have at the moment. Mm. I was in there in December to get major surgery for these two tumours. And I was in there for three days and I eventually had to discharge myself and go home because there was excuse after excuse about why they couldn't do the surgery. So it never got done? No, I was taken in the Monday, Sunday night to be done on the Monday, uh, fasting all day, next thing they'd come Monday afternoon, sorry, we have no theatre. So I have been no painkillers or anything that day, Tuesday, the same story, fasting all day, no painkillers, they'd come around three or four o'clock, sorry, can't do today, no theatre, Wednesday, fasting all day, same story. So I said, look, bye. I said, this is just, you know, I'm in pain. So eventually I got surgery in Dublin. Oh my God. 
What do they mean by no theatre? What do they mean? That well, the th- first time they blamed it on some storm we had. I can't remember the storm. This was in December. Uh, they blamed it on the storm. The second time they blamed it on COVID, that uh, they had only one theatre. But I said, look, you know, this morning you had no theatre, so I could have had my breakfast and my dinner and my painkillers coming to me at four o'clock in the afternoon to tell me you have no theatre, you know. And the day after, uh, I can't remember what the excuse was the day after, but I was told I would be done Thursday. The surgeon never did thoracic surgery on the Thursday, but he would fit me in. And I said, I'm not a person that wanted to be fitted in, you know. Mm. So I just discharged myself and I um, was referred to Dublin then because it was complicated and time-critical surgery. And you know something, haven't you got enough to be dealing with as it is? Oh, I'm telling you, I mean, I lived, I mean, I had these, this cancer last year. We were taking care of my dad. He passed away from cancer in Marymount last year. Sorry, dear. And uh, between, you know, taking care of him. But I was being sent for PCR tests every couple of weeks with these complaints that I had in my chest. You know, it's, you could be having COVID, you could be, and you can't see your GP still. Even if you're a cancer patient, you can't see your GP. It's still phone consultation so eventually I insisted on a PET scan and that's when the two tumours showed up then one near the spine and one in the lung So that's when you discovered that you had cancer? Yeah Well I knew I was speaking to you in 2015 when I had it originally when I was given three months and I mean the medication that I was put on kept it at a manageable level so 18 it showed rare it's had big time then so I was able to have massive surgery. 19, it reared its head again. So I had more massive surgery. Uh, it showed its head again last year. Oh so this year, January, I had more massive surgery. And you finished the course of radiotherapy now? I, I finished the course of radiotherapy now. And I won't know for six weeks till the next scan yeah. what the next step is going to be. Yeah. Does that worry you? It does. Yeah. It does big time now because I can see myself going downhill, and um, you can see how aggressive it is. No, it's okay. Um, Fortune, you know, you're fighting. I'm fighting for the last nearly eight years now, constantly, and I've seen every uh, hospital inside between Dad and myself. I know. I've seen different treatments between how they treat the elderly and my age. You know, so it's it's a constant. What do you mean by that, the elderly? Oh, my dad got treated totally different to the way I got treated because because of his age. In what way? Um. Well, first, I mean, my dad had he was eighty three when he was diagnosed. I mean, that was a delayed diagnosis as well. He was being treated for uh, pulled muscle in his back, so I insisted on a scan. And when they found uh, they found a large tumor in his pancreas. And uh, we have the gene, the BRCA-related cancer. So we went up, and because he was elderly, the doctor straight up, this man had only been in hospital 13 days in all his life, and that was when he was 13 for appendicitis. Mm. So the doctor straight out said to him, nothing we can do, you're incurable, inoperable. Uh, And my father said, what does that mean? And the doctor said, 12 months, here's a book about pancreatic cancer. Um, Well, I don't need to see you again. Was it that matter of fact, though? Yes. Was that, that the way it was communicated? Yes, 
yes. My dad came out. I had to hold him up. I literally had to hold him up outside the doctor's door and guide him. He was told to go down and get blood done and hold. This was in the mercy. Sit him on the chair. He was as white as sheet and got the blood done. We had to stop on the way home in Blarney for him to get air and to get out. He could not cope with the massive information he was told. So nothing I can do for you. Twelve months. Here's a book on pancreatic cancer. I won't be seeing you again. Are you serious? That's the way I was saying. Yeah. So where Um, is the compassion in that? No no compassion. Not one bit of compassion. He did get... um, chemotherapy and he was told look we can't give you this chemotherapy because of your age and my father said but I'm a fish healthy man I was never in hospital I've nothing wrong with me no heart you know blah 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 and he said well look you may be fit and healthy but your organs are 83 years old so we understood that and he fought but that sounds as if they're saying we're not treating you because you're 83 yeah, that's the way it was. And it was the same when he was going to hospital. Um, he used to be left there. And he's, uh, it's almost as if he was begging for the chemo. Yeah. He was actually in the Mercy Hospital sent in by an emergency one Friday night. And of course, during COVID, we weren't able to see him. But the doctors didn't realise he was there till the Monday morning and they apologised. Nobody informed him that, informed them that he was admitted as an emergency on the Friday night. And what happened in the so, subsequent 12 months with your dad? Um, he, we, we fought every step of the way. Now, I did make a complaint eventually bullet pointing the problems because the worst, he, the worst episode for him was he got a letter from the Mercy saying he was going in for surgery to... Now, he was told originally it was inoperable, but this was to take a biopsy to see what treatment they could do for him. So he was going, that's brilliant, that's great. You know, he was positive about it. And he had to go up to um, Cork to get a a COVID test before that episode. So we went up and the nurse said, no, you're not down. And I said, here's his letter. So she went in and she rang and she said, no, no, that's all cancelled. I'm after ringing the hospital there. You're not having that surgery at all done. Hold on a second, if you will. I want to finish the conversation out of respect to you and your dad after 10. Hey, it's Dave. Join me weekdays from 4 for Dave Max Drive, where I'll help get you home or give you a little lift at home. Big hits, loads of fun features and traffic info. What more could you need? Join me weekdays from 4. Dave Max Drive. Get it off your chest. Text The Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Okay, if I just finished my conversation for Anne, I won't keep her much longer. And you were just mentioning there, when you arrived at the hospital, then he was told it had been cancelled, yeah? Yeah, when we arrived for, at the COVID test, not the hospital, the COVID test in uh, the orthopaedic in Cork, they had no account of him going for the COVID test. Yeah. So they rang the hospital and they came back into the car to us and they said, there's no surgery going ahead for you. You know, that's not on the cards at all. That and was how far had he driven? Uh, from Charleville, so 45 right. miles. Okay, so what happened and after he that? Said, he said to me, that's the nail on the coffin now, he said. So I sent an email to his uh, oncologist who was absolutely brilliant but it pointed all the problems all down through his treatment for the first six months and his oncologist got back directly to me 
and all apologies, but it wasn't his fault because it was a different team in charge of that. And um, from then on, his oncologist was brilliant, but it was just that he kept getting lost in the middle of the, the whole lot during COVID. I mean, we brought him in an emergency on a Friday evening. He was admitted to the hospital, but the medical team weren't informed that he was actually in hospital until yeah. the I Monday. Know, I mean, I so he was a non-patient. Give. He was a non-patient inside my bed without seeing a doctor for three days. You have to understand, I suppose, what we were going through with COVID and the state of our hospitals at the time. It's a little consolation to you or your dad. And did he live long? Um, he actually surprised them all. Um, he lived 18 months. He spent the last two, uh, two or three weeks in Marymount Hospice, which we were thrilled because we were able to go and visit him for a couple of hours and a few over the visiting times. Um, we were able to see him Tuesday to Sunday for two hours. Uh, four nominated yeah. uh, visitors so we were able to visit him on those days and um, the night he died then uh, we were I got the call at 4.30am so we all went up uh, four of us and my husband five and we all ran into the room of course and she was in a coma and we were told that still only two of us could stay there so we were taking turns every half an hour but none of us wanted the, the two of us did not want to be there at the final breath right. and having the other two missing it you know yeah. so eventually uh, he did take the, the turn so we were able to get the whole lot in so he passed peacefully away and, and he, he had said to me before that he said um, I'm glad I'm gone before you he said because I wouldn't have been able to survive burying my daughter Oh, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> Sorry. And the day we were taking him up to the hospice from the house, he just waved to the house and he said, that's it, goodbye now. Oh, man, that's heartbreaking. It is, it is. Mother of God, but, that's um, heartbreaking. You know, he, he was, he was ringing me at three o'clock in the morning and he'd say, look, I have a pain here and a pain there. Did you have that when you were diagnosed with cancer? Now, pancreatic cancer is one of the worst cancers. <laughs> You can get. And did he feel in the latter stages that he had been let down? Was he bitter about that, about his treatment? He, unfortunately, where we're living in uh, Charleville, uh, the circumstance only allows an ambulance to come out and take you to Limerick. No, but I, you know about his age and, he and about very, the... He, well, at the start he was because I wanted him to be sent to um, St. Vincent's in Dublin, which is the Centre of Excellence for Pancreatic Cancer disease or anything they could do and that was pushed aside yeah and I'm just, just I'm just wondering did he feel or did you feel that he, he was being treated by the said, system because he was beyond yeah, his best before he, he, he did yeah, he felt okay, that yeah, yeah he yeah. did he felt yeah. that which was a horrible way for anybody to feel that age had a bearing on their treatment you know um, he had brilliant treatment from the Marymount Hospice palliative care team as I have at the moment yeah and we were looking, but I mean, the worst place was Limerick Regional and it got so bad there one night that the nurse rang and he said, she said, look, if it was my dad, I'd get him out of here immediately. God, so right. is it okay if we transfer him? And we said, yeah, there's beds in the mercy, but they transferred him to Nina. God almighty, all over the country. All over the country. Very, very sad to hear that story about your dad. And uh, listen, um, you know, fingers crossed for you and the uh, finished treatment that it will, that it will, you know, 
It'll no. give me a few months. That's the way I look at it. So that's all we can do is take it bit by bit. Yeah. Do you, do you think you that's know? all? Just a few months? Well, it'll give me a few months, hopefully, without more surgery. I mean, the first surgery, I said to my doctor, doctor, look, I don't care because you're taking away bits that I want. I mean, they did uh, totally hysterectomy, cervix and partial omentum, which is the apron of the bowel. The second surgery was a tumour in the groin, and the third surgery was a tumour near the spine and the lung. So I'm getting back, they told me, with the treatment I'm on, it's cloning the original tumour so when I was diagnosed eventually it was advanced stage 4 and it had travelled up to my chest so all those tumours are coming back again now in all oh, the same areas God's sake, yeah <sighs> so just to take it bit by bit and keep going as best I can I know I know please do you know? yeah please do yeah we well. missed the poor uh, what's his name uh, Ed Sheeran concert <laughs> my granddaughter <laughs> but it don't matter because she was sick anyway so All right, well, that listen. just shows you can't make plans no we can't make any plans because plans no. are just laughing back at us but do stay do stay in touch alright and hopefully you'll improve and hopefully okay Neil okay. in spite of the aggressive t- cancer that you have that you know this time round you know that this radiotherapy will have kicked its ass you know hopefully 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 alright Anne take care okay all right, thanks, Neil. Bye. Cheers, take care. Bye-bye. Text 0868-104-106, uh, 0818-104-106 if you wish to pick up the phone. And my apologies to Aidan. I've kept him waiting an age. I just had wanted to finish the conversation with Anne properly. So, morning, Aidan. Morning, Neil. How are you? Good. Uh, are we talking delays again at CUH? Yes. Um, I feel bad complaining now after listening. I know. I just wanted to do the right thing by her. So, uh, everyone has their own story to share. So, yours involves being out there with a ruptured Achilles, is it? Yeah, um, so I I got injured, I was playing five-a-side um, soccer over in Little Island and uh, I had a fairly dodgy uh, drive over to uh, to Wilton to get to, to get to the hospital because I could barely put my my left foot down on the, the clutch. But, um, yeah, well, you're, got, you're right to go to the A&E because that's both an accident and an emergency. I get that, yeah. Yeah, but uh, a few months before, I had injured my calf and I could barely walk and I didn't go... And I, I think I broke my thumb and I didn't go because I just, I, I, I rarely go to hospitals or doctors. I, I, I have to be nearly the leg hanging off me, but I really don't go. And uh, after last week, I see why I don't go. But, um, yeah. I, I got you want to give up that seven aside soccer, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, I think I have given up though for a while. <laughs> take, um, take up chest or something that won't injure you. But anyway, what happened? So I got there. I got in the door at ten to eight. And given the number, I, I, I did, this was placed a completely different note than, than when I was last, I can't remember when, but um, next thing, after maybe 15, 20 minutes to get into the... the oh, you still there? Yeah, you're just yeah. breaking up on me, so you got in there anyway, right. Hold on. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so after 15, 20 minutes, got to the triage nurse, and she took details, and then she said, oh, oh you have to just, just wait outside there now, and... Um, get a seat close to, the, to where she was because she'd bring me out crutches. I said, oh yeah, next thing. She said, oh, it could be a while now, but the crowd, she said the crowd is not too bad, so it might be that long. I was thinking maybe two, three hours. Next thing she came back, um, after an hour, gave me crutches. Okay, grand. Next thing, um, um, my girlfriend was on to my, my brother to try and come up and collect my car. And um, then, um, eventually, somebody came out to me at about um, half eleven 
um, and took me back back in further, and um, they just put me sitting down inside in another kind of waiting area. But there was only two people, two other people there. So I thought, right, this looks good. And um, do you not get well, an estimated time now? I hear tell that they tell you how long it will be. No, not at all. At all. Well, well, the, the triage nurse said kind of, kind of seemed to say it might be a few hours. I was like, okay, that's fine. But then my my brother came up at. 12 and I had to get a nurse to take me out the wheelchair out the front just so I could give him my key so he could take away my car but I wasn't too sure should, I, should he take it because I thought it, I was hoping I might be able to drive home after yeah. but um, next thing um, back in again and I was sitting there for hours and hours and, and at about maybe 3 or 4 I, I, I called the passing nurse and I, I said I had to go up there for a minute has, 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 have I been called and have I missed it no no but there's two in front you know so you, you shouldn't be um, too much longer I don't know where these two came from because there was two inside and there was other people that come and gone and all this. No, I accept, okay, other, other things may be more urgent. I, I, was, I was sitting there and I, I wasn't in tremendous pain or anything, right. but I, I just couldn't really step on it. But um, next thing, the, the one that came to me just before my brother came in was, was asking me questions and she was wondering did I need to be x-rayed. But um, the next time I was seen was around six. Um, I was falling asleep and waking up and it was I'd say just a, a bit after six anyway and um, I was taken I, I actually I called I called her and was passing and next thing she took me into um, a room and asked me on a quick kind of she she assessed this but like it was something that it, it was fairly quick and it could have been done a long time ago yeah, yeah and yeah. then she I was brought back and then I was taken again for x-ray and then I was taken for the extra at maybe around nine. And then when I was brought back, it was it was only maybe about half. I I'd heard a nurse telling somebody that 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 the um, the doctors will be changing now um, around eight or something. So I, I was I was getting worried in because um, I, I could be put to the bottom of a different list. But anyway, it was about it was around nine. I think that um, that I got the X-ray and came back and within around half an hour. There was a doctor came out and he he was just going by by the X-ray. Yeah, gone again. Okay, you still there? Okay, I wanted to get to the point where I think it totaled actually about fifteen hours. So I seem to have lost date, and I don't know why. Um, I'll stay with phone lines. Uh, no, no, I haven't. Uh, no, I haven't touched a single thing. Are you still there, Aiden? Yeah, can you hear yeah, me? No, I was. Did it add up to fifteen hours? Yeah. So. Um, Basically, the, the doctor just was just going off X-ray and what he had been told and all this, and he just he he just he said he gave me the option of surgery or a cast, and he said the cast would would probably be better because the surgery wouldn't save me much time and there could be infection, and then he just said, okay, look, he said right, I agreed to just get the cast, and then had to wait for the guy the guy to come put on the cast, and he was in the wrong place looking for me, and um, eventually it was. Um, it was around half a stint where I got to leave. With a cast on? With a cast, yeah. Okay, so was that 15 hours in total? Um, yeah, it was around, yeah, that's, it was just not long after half seven till, I suppose, around half ten till that's 15 hours, is it? Surely, Mac, at least you got it all done, though, on the same day. Well, yeah, I suppose that was the next day, like, but... um. Oh, you had to go back the next day for it? Well, no, I, I was there overnight, like. Oh, this happened overnight. I thought we were talking yeah. about the half nine and the half six. This is through the night. 
This is true tonight. There's yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah. coming so, and going. Um, not really. And, and see, I, I was I was moved from the front kind of any waiting okay. area, and I was yeah. inside in the back where, where there was only there was only a handful of people there. So why, if there's only a handful of people, was it so long and so slow? I don't know. You see, I, I, I was obviously it was like two or three in the morning, so I, I was getting kind of a, a couple hours sleep here and there. Um, and but like. I don't know. We were waiting there. Maybe there was, maybe the doctors were getting people from here and there and other parts. Yeah, other parts where other people were waiting. Knows? But who knows how many were on a roster? Well, like, okay. I, I could only, there was only two when I got there. There was this guy with with, with a with, with a, a bad back, and then there was this girl with a really bad stomach. So like, they were probably. But then there was there was one or two came after me. Yeah, okay. and um, <laughs> there was one girl complaining mad that at six in the morning that she had been waiting for two hours. <laughs> He said, I was come, like, come walk in my shoes 15 hours later. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thanks, Aidan. Let me talk to Colin. Colin, good morning. Good morning, Aidan. How are you? So I'm good. So this is this a comparison to, uh, is it France or is it Spain? Uh, both, Neil. As you know, like, we travel around Europe an awful lot in our motorhome, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, we have a first-hand knowledge of, 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 of Spain and France. But let me tell you about the French one first, because it's, it's, a, it's a natural follow-on there to your previous caller, right? Um, we were heading off there one time. We were booked on the ferry, and where we live here, and my my wife she fell and she went down on her two hands, and she was complaining about her her tongue was hurting her for a few days. So um, we thought about going to the CUH, but we said no way. Like, um, so we said we wait till we get to France. So we we arrived in France anyway, and we 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 went to the the equivalent of the CUH now in 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 Cannes in northern France. So I drive into car park in my camper, find a place to park, and uh, my wife goes in to the a right? Uh, I would say straight away she was seen, uh, she touched something broken in her, in, 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 in her hand, right? So they said, no, nothing broken, we need to get another guy to look at that. So another doctor came along and he said, you have, um, <clears throat> you have a, um, um, a snap ligament, you need to have an, an operation to have it fixed. And he says, we won't be able to do the that operation until about six o'clock this evening. It's <laughs> fast. Right? Because it was, down to, it was a full operation down, down the operating theater, full anesthetic. And they said, you'll have to stay overnight. <clears throat> so anyway, she's prepped anyway and down into the operation. In the meantime, I go back out to my motor home and um, I make myself a bit of grub and I watch a bit of telly and uh, went in. And uh, she's inside the recovery room by about eight o'clock that night. In, in the semi-private ward with, with another French theatre right? theatre done operation done the lot yeah 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 yeah. so anyway um, I went out to the camper anyway and I pulled down the blinds and I went to sleep and I slept in the camper in the hospital car park overnight and by the way there was no charges like you don't need a small mortgage to go into a hospital car park in France they don't charge right? no right. and there was no fella came along in, 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 in a security van or nothing saying me to move on they were happy enough to leave me sleep in my camper in the hospital car park while my wife was inside in the hospital overnight. Amazing, right? yeah. Anyway, next morning, about half past 10, 11 o'clock, she's discharged, plastered from the elbow down to her fingertips and fixed the, the, the torn um, snap ligament, right? Yeah. And uh, they said, um, you need to come back in about five, five weeks, five, six weeks to have the plaster taken off, right? So... <clears throat> We said, well, well, we're actually on holidays. We're touring in, in, in the motorhome, you know? So they said, that's no problem. Um, you can go into any hospital in France to have the plaster taken off and the thing checked because everything now is on, central, is, is on the central Okay, computer. so they'd have all your information in all the hospitals and access to it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. 
Did they, did so, they? So you went on your merry way. Did you have to pay them? Uh, no, the, the AHC card, um, they, or the, what was called the E11 form, yeah. that, um, that covered it. There was a small charge of about 30, 30, 30 odd euro, I think, for something that the card didn't cover. That was it? That was it. And off you went on your merry way? Off we went to the merry way. Now, as it turned out, uh, we, we kind of came back to the same hospital <coughs> for, the, for the appointment uh, in five weeks' time at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, the night before we arrived back in, into the car park, parked up, stayed in the camper overnight. Wife got out the next morning, went in, and she was back out the door within, I would say, within three quarters of an hour with the Isn't that off. heartbreaking, though? How are they getting it so right? Do they just have more hospitals or what? Um, it's obviously administration and systems, Neil. Do you know? And what about Spain, uh, then? You were in the A&E in Mercia, were you? Yeah, I have an ongoing back issue there, and uh, they're back uh, before COVID, now, which is probably 20, 2018, maybe. Um, it flared up bad, and I had to go into the, into the again, the regional hospital in, 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 um, in Mercia. So I went, drove in the camper, found a place to park, um, no charge again. So I went into this big kind of <coughs> waiting room in, in the A&E, and there was one, you know, these ticket machines where you pull the little ticket out yes, the side of your tongue with a number on it. Yeah. Pull the ticket out. And the number came up. So uh, maybe seven, ten minutes. I'm sitting there. My number comes up. So I, I went into the up to the girl in the reception, gave her all my details, and she said, "You go back and sit down." So probably about another five, seven minutes, my number came up again, and I went to what, what would be a triage nurse, and I hobbled over and I told her what my problem was. So she says, "Yeah, fine. Go back and sit down again." Went back and sit down again, and I say within the ten minutes. I was, my number came up again, and there was this um, this uh, doctor took me down to a into, into, into a room where I was up in it up on the table, examined the whole lot, um, got a shot of, of cortisone uh, in 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 you know where, and um, I was sent on my way. I would say I was driving back out the gate of that hospital within definitely within the hour, Matt Neil, within the hour. Good God! Haven't haven't been triaged. Seen by the appropriate uh, person, back specialist or whatever, um, got cortisone, got a got a prescription for ongoing medication for my back, and uh, back out the door. Oh my God! No crisis in healthcare there in Spain or, or France. Absolutely, absolutely not. Do you know? Um, and uh, as I'm talking, do you know, we spent a lot of time out there. We 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 were out there in in 2019. And we were playing. My wife was playing a bit, a bit of volleyball, yeah. and she hit it wrong, and she hurt her wrist. Uh, again, this was down in Spain now, uh, and we went into Perpignan, into the into the into the main main hospital there. And uh, again, in and out, uh, seen, checked. Um, it was just a, a slight sprain, no bother. Uh, but again, in and out within the hour. Good God! So, how would you say they're getting it so right and we're getting it so wrong? You said systems. It's obviously, it's obviously. I mean, you, like um, I really feel for the frontline staff here. It's obviously management and systems. You know, uh, I mean, like the, the one of Mercy was was unreal. You got your ticket, and it was it's up to the reception. Give her your details. Back, sit down into it. Then it, then you're called for triage. Then back down, and then into see something. It just works. It works. Amazing. All right. Amazing. It it it, it, it works like uh, and and um, like you know. I mean, I I was looking researching something else there, Neil, and um, I think we're 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 paying about the third highest per capita into our health system in Europe. 
And what they're paying in, in France and Spain is, 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 low, is less than us per capita. What you do you mean by virtue of where our tax goes, is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the billions that, 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 the, that the HSE get to run the health services here, right, is, is, is the third highest per capita in Europe. Yeah, I don't know, man. Per, I just per, don't, per get population. I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, there's all the, 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 you, know, you, all you these, say twenty minutes, tables. twenty minutes in and out. It'd be twenty hours here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, people are walking yeah. out of the A and E's now after eighteen and twenty hours. They're just going home. Yeah, well, like I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. What, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes here, Neil. To be honest about it, but um, like. Uh, that's the, I'll send you, that's the way it works in France. That's the way it works in Spain. Okay, my man. They, okay, they, okay. they obviously have they have systems for dealing with people. It's probably I I don't know, but uh, I mean I I cry when I'm, you know Jesus like I find something now I nearly, I nearly book a ferry and go to France. That's to what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. I'd probably be yeah. over there quicker. And yeah, get a ferry back, to know? France or get a plane to Spain or whatever. Get treatment there. Mother of God, it goes from bad yeah. to worse. Yeah, all, all, all you all you need is your EHIC card and 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 you're away. I hate saying it, but it certainly could be a better option. Thanks so much, Colin. Mind yourself. No problem. Safe travelling in the camper van. Rose, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Neil, forgive me if the voice is a bit shaky because I'm still a bit upset about the whole thing. What happened? Um, I wanted to tell where my brother, who was 78, who walked all his life from the age of 13, who reared a family and went on to get very, very ill. Um, so he had been back and forward, the usual, trying to get a GP and the whole lot and being given tablets and this and that. And anyway, one of the days, um, I'm going back into March, so he got a bad fall and we took him up to the Mercy Hospital and they brought him in. He was very confused. He, We were thinking he was getting a bit of dementia in that because he was very confused. He didn't know where he was, what was happening, going and coming. And Might have hit his anyway, head. Anyway, the, the split, yeah, he hit his head, but that wasn't the issue. The, the, the whole thing was that the split wasn't too bad. So anyway, look, they, they, he was in the... A&E and he was admitted and he was in for about four days and of course as I said he still continued to be kind of a bit delirious and the whole lot and uh, anyway look they could find nothing as such and they said his sodium was a bit low so they let him home so he was home anyway he was home I'd say on average probably maybe 10-12 days and he still continued to be not well he had terrible fluid in the legs and all this and anyway um, so he got another very uh, bad fall and he was back in again. It was the same situation. He was out. And eventually, anyway, um, this morning, my his daughter-in-law was trying to get a, a point for the GP. Let's move oh, around a little bit there, Rose. is breaking up. His daughter was trying sorry, to get an appointment sorry. for the GP. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she was trying to get an appointment for the GP. Um, so that was on the Thursday. She brought us forward to the Tuesday. And so she went to tell him that she, his appointment was earlier and she found him on the floor. So basically she rang an ambulance at 12 o'clock. She rang me. I wasn't near enough to come back. But anyway, he was taken by ambulance at 12 o'clock midday from his home to the Mercy Hospital. So we're keeping contact all day. Came to half six at night. Came to half past ten that night. And eventually he was still, each time they rang, she was answered by the ambulance man who was minding him in the ambulance. He still hadn't been admitted because they couldn't be admitted because there was such a queue in Mercy and there were four ambulances beside himself in the same situation. 
So he was eventually brought into Amy. How long was he two, in the ambulance? He was from 12 o'clock midday until 2.30 a.m. in the morning, coming on Wednesday morning. So that's and what? From what time in the morning? It, from 12. So that's 14 hours. From 14 hours. In the ambulance? In the ambulance. And the ambulance man, he, all this time, right, because he was so confused in the whole lot, he kept ringing his son, distressed, saying that he was going to get a taxi and go home and please come down for him. And we knew if we had gone down for him, he would have wanted to come home and we really needed him to be in because we knew there was something seriously wrong with him. So okay. for 14 hours, he's in the back of an ambulance with the paramedic just parked going up outside nowhere. Mercy. Exactly, exactly. And so that's, a, so that's that okay. Night. That's an issue for yeah. your your for your brother, obviously an yeah. unwell man. Yeah. But yeah. for yeah. all of us, of course, now we know of yeah. an ambulance that's off the, the road for fourteen was missing hours and out of action. And so were three others with him. And I was informed that they were nineteen at the time in CUH as well. Fourteen hours in the back of an ambulance parked. Fourteen hours in the back of an ambulance. So he gets in at half past two. At that stage, obviously, like everybody, when you get into any, there's a wait. So he's. We were told he was walking up and down and whatever, distressed and the whole lot. And eventually, anyway, he, somebody, they got one of the care assistants to walk the corridor up and down with him to try and calm him down. And he eventually sat in a chair and he fell asleep. He was wrapped up in a blanket and he, they said they'd leave him while he was asleep. So it was actually half the six in the morning when my um, niece's, uh, well, she got on. And at that stage, they took his medications and, spoke to her about what was happening with him. So look, basically anyway, he was admitted at that stage, okay? And um, a few days went on. We weren't, because of COVID, we couldn't visit. She tried to make an appointment during the week and she was told the man in the ward or something had COVID so she couldn't go in. So basically he was in deal for nearly 10 days. Um, and we really didn't know much of what was happening. We'd ring and we were told she'd a bit of breakfast this morning and He's not too bad and they're hoping, you know, whatever. Anyway, it turned out that he had pneumonia. So that was his confusion. He had delirium, obviously, from the, the pneumonia. And the pneumonia, when they x-rayed him, the doctor that x-rayed him, that looked at the previous x-rays when he was in the previous week, he actually had pneumonia and so he was let out with pneumonia. So by that stage, the, the pneumonia was so bad and... Um, he obviously was very, very ill, seriously ill. And the day before he died, um, died they got died. a call. Yeah, they got a call. We actually never got to see him. Only in the hours before he died, where he was completely out of it. And I didn't even know that we were there. So they had him on one of those pap masks, they called them, you know, the breathing um, mask, the breathing machine. They eventually put him on that because he'd got a collapsed lung. So the first we knew about that he was even on oxygen was the Friday. He died on the Tuesday. So the, the, we only knew then at that stage that he was on oxygen. As yeah. I said, we got very little information. Yeah, yeah. And, and so he died. Um, once they took off the breathing machine, he died about sheer literally 15, 20 but that was his um, reward for hoping, as I said, all his life. Was, was he alone he, when he passed away? Were you with him? He, they rang us. They rang us at 6.30 on the Monday. Well, they rang his son. 
to say that they should probably come down because he had become very ill. And as I said, we I didn't know. know anything about the chest strain that he'd had a collapsed lung or anything until we went into the ward. And are you um, very upset? Of course you're very upset about the passing of your brother. Of course brother, I'm but, very but, upset. But do you think that course. that week where he had already been diagnosed with pneumonia but sent home would have made a difference? Well, I'm sure it may not have made a difference, but I'm sure it would have made him a lot more comfortable. And he probably would have got a lot more care and we probably wouldn't have felt that, look, maybe there was a chance had he been caught. You don't know, you see. Yeah. You don't know, and you do your best, as I said, and you, you know, you, you ring and you ask for a doctor, and even going back before Christmas, um, I had like that rang myself when we were still kind of in COVID time, um, and I had rang Doc, and at the time, he didn't even ask me if maybe there was a chance that he would have had COVID. Yeah. I rang to say that he was very ill. He sounded as if he had a chest infection and expecting that he would say to me, bring him out to South Dock, and he didn't. He said, I give you an antibiotic and a steroid. And my point being, Neil, if I looked for that myself in a year or two years ago, I would be told, oh, you can't have an antibiotic we would first have to see you. See you, you know, and I believe that also a lot of GPs are still phone-only consultations. Exactly. You see, what's really exactly. sad, of course, is that he, you're not at peace. He's he 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 never got to say no, goodbye. No, we, we you never, never had, will be. You never had no, a conversation, no. or there was, you know, no, no, so we, many unanswered questions. To, yeah, and then um, I suppose like two weeks later, or three weeks later, whatever, the hospitals have now opened up, which was even more of a pity because you're kind of saying, if only he could have that, you know. Um, know, like on the night as I said my regret will always be that I didn't go down to the ambulance that night when he was down there because I worried even by half eleven had he got tea had he got coffee was he hungry Did, you know in all that time he he'd have there, got nothing in the back of an ambulance he'd have got nothing and like to me as I said when I, I rang and they, they the son said to me Jesus if you go down you know because as I said look the man was, was distraught and he said, if you go down and he'll see you, he'll insist on coming away. And look, he really needs to be looked after now at this stage. You know, his uh, You're persecuting yourself over that. You did the right thing that you it thought is, at the, you see, at the this, time. This is what people don't see, Neil, behind all this that goes on. They don't see the torment that the relatives have after because they, you feel that you hadn't done enough to look after. I know. Do you I know, know what I mean? I know. I know. So, I know, I know. Um, so look, that, that's my story. Sorry and to hear that. I, look, I, I actually, I don't, as I said, I don't blame the staff. I've recently, I know I'm feeling very bad this morning. I have. Okay. All right. Well, that's for for well, Paddy. Um, he's actually at the moment in CUH. And again, we had. Sorry, another, I just lost that piece of the conversation. Who's in sorry, CUH? Sorry, I said another brother. Um, we, I actually, we. They were both sick at the same time. Another brother that I care for here, that I live with here, um, is at the moment in CUH. And we had an incident there again at the weekend on Sunday. Um, not as bad because at least he was admitted to A&E. But like that, we went in there at a quarter to three and he actually didn't get to see a doctor until 11.15 that night. And when you hear so, stories out of France or Spain or yeah. Italy then, you would despair, wouldn't you? Absolutely. But you'd wonder then, Neil, you know, when you, it's different if you're living there, whatever, if you're maybe a permanent resident. But when you go there, I presume when you go, you're being done and you're, 
E11 form or I whatever, know, or you I possibly mean, have health insurance. I don't think see, that anybody gets priority. I think, it, yeah, yeah, that's that's what you'd worry. You know, is it just that our system? Um, and to be honest, look, I was in there myself before, and I was saying, you know, if I had um, private insurance, and I remember the nurse saying to me, it wouldn't make a difference. No difference. You know? Yeah, they say that it's just the system. Um, yeah, there yeah. just aren't enough staff there. Look, it comes down to the government at the end of the day. They just need to do something with our system. Um, I agree with those people that they were first on hand there to do something with the whole airport situation. Please let them go out to the A&Es and see what's happening there. We can all do without a holiday if it comes down to it. Okay, it's terrible. Yeah. But when you're talking life and death and you're talking about misery for elderly people, lying on a, a, sitting on a chair, lying on a bed, lying in an ambulance, waiting, that, that is just... You know, that should never happen. Couldn't have put it any better myself. Thanks, Rose. Much obliged to you for taking okay. the call. Sad and all as it is. 14 hours in the back. Of, you're welcome. 14 hours in the back of an ambulance with a paramedic who can't even work that kind of shift. I mean, that paramedic would have been way, way overworked. I believe they're only supposed to work 12-hour shifts. I wonder if that's the ordinary or the extraordinary 14 hours sitting in the back of an ambulance and three other ambulances there as well. All of them, of course, taken out of circulation. Back after the break, text 0868104106. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818104106. Cork's Red FM. Uh, 63 on trolleys at uh, the A&E and the CUH yesterday. Do you know the way it is? You become almost normalised by those kind of numbers. It's like I found myself at the weekend saying, oh my God, the petrol is cheap here. It was like 192 or something like that. I remember thinking, but I just remember saying to myself, what are you talking about? That isn't cheap. But you know the way you become normalised into thinking, oh, that's cheap by comparison to somebody else who's 198 or 202 or today 210, 215. We become normalised as well to a bad uh, health system because it just becomes... So, as I say, a normal, a healthcare worker got in touch originally who was talking about working through the bank holiday weekend, one of the worst they'd ever worked. Uh, and a lot of it, unfortunately, was for people who shouldn't have been in the A&D in the first place. A lot of them drunk or out of their heads on drink or drugs. But uh, I just want a quick to chat with Bernadette Phillips, who's a social scientist and a columnist with the Monster Express down Waterford Way. Bernadette, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Good. Can you can you tell me where are we at now with GP appointments, where somebody can physically go and see their doctor? Uh, are we back to normal on that yet? I don't think we're back to normal. I think it really depends on the practice, um, Neil. And uh, obviously, the, there's huge differences right across the country as well. I mean, the, at, at the core of this is that there is a huge shortage of GPs in Ireland um, and we've had a huge issue with this for a number of years so this isn't something new um, GPs um, retiring you know coming up to retirement age not being replaced and um, particularly in rural areas and where we might have locums coming in and of course that doesn't give con- continuity of care yeah. at all yeah. to people. not just that actually I was talking to some GPs on the air a fortnight ago not just the GPs in the practice but also their nurses and their admin staff and their secretaries they're short all across the board they they absolutely are you, you know and and that's getting worse and why? I suppose I remember why though because um, our colleges are churning out medical graduates well, well, you see, they're, they're, they are, but uh, the other side of it is we're not training enough GPs in Ireland. And just looking at even figures, I think it's was last year, was 235 being trained, and they're planning on training 350 by 2026. Yeah, but okay. there's no guarantee that they'll stay in Ireland, you see. That's the one. 
that's absolutely the one. And that's exactly the issue as well in, in trying to fill these um, GP places after GPs retire, is that you know, younger, younger people are training and they're going abroad. Because the working conditions, I mean, my God, I was crying there, Neil, listening to all your interviews yeah. prior to this, yeah. chatting to you. Because it's absolutely heartbreaking. And it's scandalous. And, you know, there's, there's doctors and there's nurses and they're working in there. And they're working in those very, very challenging conditions. And we have to say that as well. Because what we have is a HFE that's not fit for purpose. And is it a case yes. that the A&Es are, over, are, over, are very, very busy or, or ramped up or crowded because people can't get to see a GP, is it? Oh, oh, I think that has to have a huge influence. And is it the same with trying to get into South Dock, is it? Well, well, yes, I mean, of, of course, because, I mean, where there isn't availability of service, where will people go? I mean, if people are ringing up and they can't get to see a GP for a week, two weeks, God, I've seen six weeks so, somewhere written, um, you know, where are people going to go? They need uh, to, to have medical care, medical attention, and they're going to make their way to an emergency. But the CUHHSE has issued a statement this morning encouraging people to stay away from A&E's, visit your doctor, or go to South Dock. Yeah, well, well, well that's it. And you see, that's, that's the kind of line that we're actually hearing coming from management. We see it on the HSE sites all the time. Oh, go to your GP. You know, we saw it through COVID. You know, and if you have an issue, you know, go to your GP. And the GPs weren't seeing people. Yeah, but, the, but A&E is not a medical centre. It's for accidents and emergencies, life oh, and death situation, broken absolutely. bones, excessive yeah, bleeding, yeah. things like that. Yeah, well, absolutely. But if, 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 you're, if you're somebody who's, who's ill and you can't see a GP, and I mean, I, I know but I talk to a lot of older people, you know, they get very nervous and they can't see the GP. Where are they going to go True. if they don't go to an so A&E? So with a, che- a chest infection, they'll go to an A&E? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Bronchial problems, absolutely. they'll go to an A&E. Yeah, absolutely, because, I mean, they think, well, look, I'm going to be seen by somebody. And the shocking thing is, then, is that overcrowding and that waiting. But, I mean, I was just listening there about other countries, and, and my old partner a few years ago had got shingles when we were away, actually, in Spain. And we went to a hospital, and he was seen basically immediately. You see, it all you know? comes back to... Mary Harney and Michal Martin, I even see texts again this morning when they yeah. decided to centralise everything into centres of excellence like the CUH. But a load of Cork yeah. hospitals were closed. You know, the A&E yeah. and the South Infirmary. Was yeah. like, we had loads of hospitals. And I'd say in rural Ireland, there was loads of closed hospitals as well. There was. All, all over the country, we've seen smaller hospitals being shut down. I mean, we've seen people's campaigns to keep our hospital open. You know, those stories are everywhere in the media. So we closed all of our hospitals. I wonder, did the French and the Spanish and the Italians do likewise? Or the UK? I mean, how how do they do? Um, The UK, their NHS, I mean, that's under serious pressure as well at the moment. But do they have lots of regional hospitals, you know, smaller ones? Yeah, yeah, but we hear very similar stories, you know, coming out of the UK at the moment. But but obviously, um, the the European countries, main main European countries, are, are somehow able to do it differently. But, I mean, the whole point is you have a system that's broken. But... Within that, you know, people are treated, you, you know the waiting list, people are waiting, put a, a million people on a waiting list for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we have a system that's broken. And, 
you're right there about how things become normalised. You say, oh gosh, yes, her people are only waiting years. You know what? You know, uh, I mean, the scandal, the absolute scandal of that, and the scandal of the policies of successive governments. And, and we have to call it out, Neil, because it, it is what it is at the end of the day. Well, it sounds tra- fairly straightforward to me. If you close all of the smaller regional hospitals, yes. it means everybody is going to be going to the centres yes. of excellence and they're just going to be overcrowded and clogged. Well, I mean, it, it, it's not rocket science, is it, no. when you say it like that? Um, but, you know, and when we look at the shortage of GPs, I mean, there's whole areas in Ireland, rural Ireland, that have no GP. Isn't that shocking? Unbelievable. And the people in medical cards, you know, services, they can't access in their county GPs. And it's, it's really terrifying. So we have people and older people having to travel long distances to see a GP. And you and have signs in GPs' offices yeah. now and doors saying yeah. no new patients and no, exactly. new, no more yeah. medical cards. You literally took the word out of my mouth. Oh, there, that. We're not actually taking on new people. So that is creating a huge issue. But you can imagine, you see, this is known for years and years. So there's no politician and there's no minister can come on and say to you or me or anybody else that, oh, hey, this is a, an issue because of COVID. That is absolute nonsense. Yeah, yeah, it is not. Yeah. We've had a broken healthcare system, public healthcare system, for years. And it has not been sorted uh, by numerous health ministers and uh, by numerous governments. Um, at the end of the day, you have stories like you've been listening to, we've been listening to this morning on your program. Absolutely heartbreaking because people become statistics when they go into a system. And somehow they cease to be human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we need to revisit with compassion because there isn't the compassion there anymore that these are people, that they have families, that they have loved ones, that they deserve dignity. Yeah. And that doesn't matter what age they are. Yeah. Service, medical care needs to be liver, delivered uh, where need is. And we're not seeing that Simple at the moment. And I'm very angry about it, yeah. Neil, because I've seen it over decades and I've seen what's happened our public health care systems over decades. Mm. I've seen it pushed aside in favour of privatisation. And that's a major, major problem in Ireland. They wanted to privatise everything, basically. Mm. Um, So we have a broken system, and unless there's somebody (laughs) that has the vision and the heart within a government, and I'd say this, I'd say this to Micheál Martin, the Taoiseach, here this morning. I'd say, Taoiseach, you have got to do something about this. And this is a real call out because this is an appalling... He was a Minister for Health once. Yeah. This is a legacy that is shocking in Ireland and it cannot be allowed to continue. Thank you so much for taking the call. Bernadette Phillips, uh, lines are open. Text 0868 Back after the break. I'm Rory. And I'm Valerie. And you can join us for the very best in local, national and international sport every weekend on The Big Red Bench. That's The Big Red Bench, every Saturday and Sunday from 6 on Cork's Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM This is the Neil Frienderville Show A very special day today for Margaret and Patrick O'Mahony from Churchfield Square Mar- their mum and dad to many many kids and Margaret and Patrick will be married 50 years today so happy anniversary Neil it would make their day if you wish them a happy 50th wedding anniversary for their two sons Joe and John daughter Mary grandkids Connor Ava Gordon Christopher and Lauren and don't forget yourself 
Mam and Dad always have you on in the house and would make a great day for them if you could let them know that they're the best Mam and Dad in the whole world. Love the show. Keep up the great work. So, yes, indeed. Happy to do that. Wish a happy 50th wedding anniversary to the great Margaret and Patrick O'Mahony from Churchfield Square. Well done. Have a super day today. Text 0868104106. Haven't you realised yet, Neil, that it's children with special needs and the elderly that are treated like animals in this country because they're not contributing to the government coffers and they're only a burden on society as far as they're concerned. They are a statistic, as the fellow says. Could they separate the people waiting uh, a bed to another area of the hospital and place the people due for discharge but with nowhere to go on trolleys? Years ago, as they're saying, you know, I suppose segregate patients. Years ago, patients were not going through the A&E just to get a bed in the hospital. Uh, why can't they build a high-rise A&E just like the block of student apartments that go up so quickly? The one in Victoria Cross went up so fast then they'd have beds for everyone, plenty of room to build up in that area of the CUH. No Cork TD is solving this no matter what party, says Anne. Yeah, it's all very well to say, OK, well, why don't they build um, you know, more units and more wards and more beds? It's about putting staff into them. Came across a story recently of a person who was uh, had a bit of a fall down in Australia, uh, went to a hospital and was tended to by an Irish doctor. Uh, the reason the Irish doctor was there Apparently, the doctor said, because I just wouldn't have this quality of life in Ireland. Uh, there was an NHS accident, an emergency unit in Essex in England. Someone posted a video of the nurse telling people they might have to wait up to 13 hours. The difference between England and here is there's uproar in England and the Houses of Parliament go crazy over it. Whereas here, our health minister hasn't a clue and the rest of the suits just don't seem to care. Fair play to the woman highlighting what's going on in this country. Once you pass a certain age, you are of no value to the state, can't work, um, can't tax your wages, so you're not worth saving. Shame on that doctor. Um, well, I think that's probably to do with how the doctor told the elderly gentleman, her brother, not, not too elderly, incidentally, he's 83 years old, but that uh, nothing I can do for you. 12 months, you won't be seeing me again. Um, why are we always so surprised that every first world country gets stuff right? Same crap as always here. All the money spent on civil servants, but never the money spent on services. In Spain, they have another layer before you go into A&D in Spain. Most people go to health centres where they're dealt with with regards to most issues. At that point, the more serious will then be transferred to hospital. These centres are fairly busy, but very efficient. And it takes the pressure off A&Ds in hospitals. You can go direct to A&E in a hospital if you wish, but most go to health centres, says Mike. Uh, yeah, and I suppose what happens in this country is everybody goes to A&E even to get in admissions through hospital. Haven't you realised yet that, oh yeah, I've read that one already, that's children with special need and the elderly uh, who are just deemed in Ireland to be a burden uh, to society. Uh, text 0868104106, pick up the phone on 0818104106. One or two other matters actually. Yesterday we were talking about people who are constantly be stopped and searched and this was a mother telling about her son out in Toker and all he's doing every evening is going to the gym and five out of seven nights a week he will be stopped and searched just going to and from uh, the gym. Uh, about 25 years ago my brother kept getting stopped by police while driving his company car. Imagine you're talking about the guardie. He was in his early 20s, had a company car. I was with him once and they were very rude for no reason and very condescending. It happened so many times that he eventually had to take insurance documents to the police station so many times that my dad 
who was from Cork, went to the police station. I think it may have been, uh, could this have been the UK? You keep on saying police. Went to the police station, asked for the superintendent and gave him a roasting in the main foyer in front of everyone. Uh, my brother was never stopped again, says Justin. Um, we were curious as to what is the rule with regards to guardy stopping and searching people. And there is a section of law where it's covered. It's called reasonable cause. It's up to the Garda, but it's called reasonable cause. We're a member of Angarda Shikona who, with with reasonable cause, suspects that a person is in possession of a controlled drug, may, without warrant, search the person. If he or she considers it necessary for the purpose, may detain the person for such time to make the search. Search any vehicle, any vessel or aircraft in which he or she suspects that a drug may be found and seize and detain anything found in the course of the search. So, reasonable cause are the interesting words here. Remember the Garda Shikona, with reasonable cause, can um, search uh, without warrant. So, it's uh, certainly covered by law. Uh, you, you, uh, you wonder, though, why you keep searching the same person night after night after night and constantly find nothing, though, I suppose. Maybe that's the difference. Back after the break. <laughs> Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818 104 106. Cork's Red FM. Okay, just one or two bits and pieces, and I'll come back to a lot of texts from yesterday's program soon. But we're talking about the price and the cost of things. The cheapest hotel in Cork City this Saturday night will set you back €239. You'll pay an awful lot more on other ones. These are just in the city on the island, anywhere between €238 and €306. That's just for Saturday night in the city, even if you're lucky enough to get one there the room rates and if you wanted to rent a car in Cork say for instance next week Monday to Sunday six days starting prices at 775 euro with Hertz for a Volkswagen up now the Ford Focus will set you back somewhere in the region of about 840 euro for the six days and it'll go keep going north after that then you'll be looking at a Ford car for 876 and a Mondeo for 900 uh, and it just continues to rise. Even when you get up to a Ford Puma or a Ford Ka with sixth, it can be 1,000 to 1,142. It's all about, they say, supply and demand, not having enough to go around. I wonder about that, though. I mean, you could say the same about petrol and diesel and everything, but we always wonder, is there a bit of a scalp going on there? Are we in a rip-off republic yet again? That's a very sad story that was brought to my attention as well of an elderly woman, a 90-year-old customer, at uh, Wilton Shopping Centre. This is so sad because um, she lost her wedding ring, her wedding band, uh, a few weeks back, apparently, and I've only just been seeing it. It's been being shared online now. And this is a wedding band that she hadn't taken off in 70 years. Um, and Wilton Shopping Centre said, sadly, this elderly woman lost her husband six years ago and she's completely heartbroken over the fact that she's lost the wedding ring. If anyone's found it, please let us know because they'd love to get it back to this customer. She's 90 years old, lost the wedding band, must have slipped off her finger and hadn't taken it off in 70 years. Uh, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if somebody's come across that at Wilton Shopping Centre, if you have, uh, you might text us, um, text 0868104106 and we can pass on the details if you have it. You'd never know. Somebody might have just found it, spotted it and didn't know what to do with it. Anyway, uh, stay listening. Text 0868104106. I just want to stop and um, just I want to check in with the guy who's going to have a very busy few days ahead. His name is Matt Griffin. He's a cork man, born, reared in Douglas. But would you believe it? He drives for Ferrari and this weekend which will be across, I guess, the uh, Saturday and Sunday, a moment of correction. He will be driving in the Le Mans 24-hour race. And he joins me by phone. Morning to you, Matt. 
Hi Neil, uh, nice uh, nice to be on your show. I'm, it, a, I'm a big fan of the thanks, show, pal, so thanks. great to be on yeah. on your show. Is it Saturday and Sunday? Is it? Yeah, so the race starts at uh, three p.m. on uh, on Saturday, and then twenty four hours. So the the checkered flag is three p.m. on Sunday. Isn't that an amazing thing? Just on on the the latest story coming out of Le Mans is that Michael Fassbender's had a crash. Is that right? Yeah, he crashed in qualifying. Um, Mike's a good good friend of mine through racing. Actually, um, he's 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 a great guy. And the the history of Le Mans. So Mike's obviously a professional actor, but uh, amateur racing driver and. Uh, Le Mans, the kind of history is built on on amateur racing drivers doing Le Mans. Um, so if you think of, there's a pro-am category. Um, so Michael is the amateur and he'll race with two professionals yeah. uh, for the 24 hours. So yeah, oh, he, had a, right. he had a bit of an off in qualifying. No, he's fine, he's fine. He a uh, bit of damage to the car, but it's all fixable, I think. I think it's a Porsche 911. You, you, you're, you drive Ferraris for a living, do you? Yeah, yeah. I've um, started... <laughs> I've, I've been a racing driver all my life, you know, started in, in Watergrass Hill karting and uh, with me and my dad and uh, yeah, just kind of went from there and uh, I've, I moved when I was 18 to the UK because in motorsport in Ireland, there's an industry there, but it's more of a hobby kind of industry. And if you're, if you're looking at doing, doing it on a professional level, um, You've got to you've got to move to England where the where the heart of it is. So I moved to England when I was seventeen, and uh, yeah, ended up signing for Ferrari in two thousand and eight. Uh, and yeah, here I am on uh, Saturday. It'll be my eleventh uh, start at the twenty four hour of Le Mans. Isn't that amazing? So professionally, yeah. for a living, you drive Ferrari sports cars. Yeah, 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 all over the world, uh, Neil. So uh, obviously it's France this weekend, but I've raced in America, Australia, um, China. Um, I suppose, you know, to my detriment, I don't really kind of shout it from the rooftops. I just kind of get on with it and uh, and do it. But uh, but yeah, I've and it all really started in living, Watergrass Hill karting, is it? Yeah, um, me and my dad used to we we'd go around um, Ireland to so Watergrass Hill, Mondello, um, karting. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. Today uh, is actually would have been, would have been his birthday. Um, but uh, but yeah, we we uh, yeah we started um, just karting, just you know a, um, a lad and his dad, and uh, yeah, happened to be quite good at it. And uh, obviously, with the with the support of of him and and the rest of my family, kind of. Uh, pushed it through I did I did go to UCC for, for two months and then chucked it in to go racing cars so it kind of worked <laughs> out you're living the dream man you really and truly are for, okay so Le Mans is 24 hours the car never stops yeah. for the 24 hour period but you 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 share the explain you share the drive is it yeah, you share the drive. So you have, um, it's mandatory to have three drivers. And uh, in the class that I'm in, each driver in the world is rated. So the top rating is a, is a gold rated driver. I'm a gold rated driver. Wow. Then you have um, what's known as a silver rated driver, um, which is a, essentially a semi-pro or maybe a young guy trying to become a professional, let's say. And then you have a bronze rated driver and the bronze rated driver is, that's what Michael Fassbender is and he's rated as an amateur, but they call them amateurs, but most of these guys don't do anything but race cars, um, if you know what I mean. Um, And then, so you're doing three drivers and usually the the bronze driver has a minimum driving time in the 24 hours of six hours. The silver has a minimum driving time of six. But because the gold driver is usually faster, then I will do 12 of the 24 hours. But you won't do um, it in one chunk, race. will you, Mad? You, you jump in and out? No, 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 no. 
yeah, we jump in and out and we basically, we call them stints. So a stint is, is how long a tank of fuel lasts. Um, and it's an hour. Um, it works out at about an hour. Um, so usually I will do a double, which is two hours, maybe three hours in the car at one in one kind of block. Um, and then it's a case of you get out, you speak to your engineers, you force feed yourself some food because you don't really want to eat. Then you see the physios, you try and get a little bit of sleep. And then, uh, then you, you jump, you're back in the car. So it's, um, so, so it's, those changeovers uh, yeah, it's would also, quite intense. so the changeovers would be for fuel and probably for tires as well. Yeah. Yep. Uh, fuel, tires, and then a driver change. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's all done quite frantically. It's amazing. And you know when you're when you're like who can who can actually win this race? Is it not who comes first? Is it or who actually covers the most distance in 24? Hours? How does it work? Yeah, so the it, it basically is who comes first. So, um, you know, in in the hist- the race starts at 3 p.m. so the you're on your on your grid we had qualifying yesterday. Um, we had a kind of an average qualifying qualified 14th out of in the middle of the grid basically. Um, but Basically, the race starts at uh, 3 p.m. on Saturday. Saturday. Green flag goes. And whoever is first to cross the line on 3 p.m. on Sunday wins. And it used to be in the history when the cars were, um, I suppose, you know, a a little bit less reliable. You kind of had to nurse the cars. But the cars are so fast now and they're so reliable that basically you have to go 24 hours of qualifying laps um so from a physical point of view it is it's difficult and one of the 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 issues that we encounter is i burn about a thousand calories an hour when i drive the car so if i do 12 hours which which i'm going to do like like twelve thousand calories why so many yeah i know it's very physical (laughs) Um, it is it is very physical um you know we're, we're all we're all wired up i mean Probably back in the old days, they'd um, you know have a have a cup of Barry's tea and and some porridge and jump in the car. And oh, way back them. ninety Whereas years ago, probably <laughs> champagne, I'd imagine. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. probably <laughs> there's, there's there is some stories from from the fifties, um, but nowadays we're all wired up. So, like I have you know heart rate monitors and all that sort of stuff, so they can see. And my usually my heart rate averages about one sixty five for a stint. Um, so it's it's proper like cardio exercise it is um it is tough but the issue is trying to get that that amount of calories in over 24 hours when you don't really want to eat you don't want um, to yeah and what would you eat no it's strange so you start off eating start off before the race and during the first couple of hours eating healthy stuff so some fruit nuts um oats some you know uh, plain pasta but by the time you're at the end of the race you just need something that the body will like and everyone's different and I've you know this is my 11th Le Mans I've done over the world more than 30 24 hour races so I kind of understand myself quite well so for me it's breakfast cereal so I eat about two boxes of breakfast cereal um, I just because you can eat at any time any particular any, any, time, any particular you know. cereal I'm partial to the Cocoa Pops Neil I have to say <laughs> That's a lot of cocoa. But <laughs> if you've got to go to the it loo is. or something, you just can't pull in. Well, you, no, no, no. Well, luckily, um, <laughs> luckily enough, it's uh, the start of the race when you're nervous. That that is that can be a bit of an issue. So you're you're <laughs> nipping to the loo. But once the race starts, you, you're you're you sweat so much that you actually can't stay um, ahead of your dehydration. Well, you do, um, you and you'll usually. Yeah. yeah, usually you usually would lose about seven kilos throughout the twenty four hours, six <laughs> to seven kilos of weight. So yeah, that's phenomenal, isn't uh, it? 
Yeah, it's good if you want to go on a diet. That's, that's nearly fifteen pounds. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So I, just, I didn't uh, want yeah. I didn't want the moment to pass without acknowledging and chatting to a Corkman in the Le Mans twenty four yeah, race. It. In fairness, like yeah. really, yeah. but I mean, it's it's dangerous though. I mean, the speeds they're being travelled. What are we talking? 200, 250, 300 kilometers an hour, kind of thing. Yeah, no, we we have a top speed of about three twenty five kilometers an hour. Um, and Le Mans is, is quite individual as a circuit because um, Le Mans is quite individual as a circuit because uh, it's it's run mostly on public roads. Um, so basically, like up until yesterday, there was trucks and stuff driving around the roads right. and they close them off. It's a small, sleepy French village that does nothing really. But Le Mans 24 hour comes in, they shut the roads, 400,000 people come and... Uh, yeah, racing cars hooning around us, you know, 320 kilometres an hour. It's amazing, isn't it? It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah. And for that 24-hour period, it will be televised? Yeah, it's all live on Eurosport. And it's actually, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly big event. And this is the first year where it's properly back. They have run it during COVID, but yeah. this is the first year where would it's back with full fans. Would there be people who would sit down and watch all 24 hours? Hardly. Uh, I think maybe the diehard fans would. Um, I think people nip in and out, but the biggest kind of draw to the event is um, basically the spectators. So we'll, there's over four hundred thousand spectators will come um, to the race, and it's funny because if you if you Google it, National Geographic rated it the number one sporting event in the world with the Olympic second in the football well, world. Four hundred thousand people. So, I can yeah. understand why. But what yeah. about the crashes, though? There have been very serious ones, hasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it's, have people died, Matt? Yeah, yeah. The it, I did a really tough one. It was my second one in 2013, and uh, a counterpart of mine was killed. A Danish guy called Alan Simonson. Um, but you know, it's 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 like anything, Neil. The the you make the cars are as safe as they can be. Um, you know, as drivers, we we drive safely, but we have to drive. We're paid to drive on the ragged edge. So you know, there's a kind of oxymoron there, really, when you when you look at it. Um, but you know, if if you if you do crash, you can get injured or even worse. But we we understand the risks. We know the risks, and uh, you know, maybe if the risks weren't there, um, you know, the race the motorsport wouldn't be what it is. So it's uh, yeah, amazing. obviously. Fingers crossed, and please God, nothing, nothing bad happens I'll be this keeping, year. But, I'll be uh, dipping in. I'll be dipping possible. in and out. I won't be watching the whole twenty-four hours, <laughs> but I keep, I keep an eye on you. How will I spot you? What color is the Ferrari? <laughs> so it's it's green. It's a it's a green Ferrari number fifty-five, um, <laughs> and we're in the uh, yeah we're in the GTE class. And what do you like? What do you drive them when you're at home, say around Ballincollig or visiting Douglas? <laughs> What's your car of well, choice? It, it, it all depends. So. Um, what I did was I kind of dip in between the UK and Ireland, so I don't have a permanent car in Ireland, but I have uh, I've got a I've got a BMW M3 in the UK, so it's it's a quickish road. Although I I adhere to the speed limit. I was going to ask times, you: Do you have yeah. any penalty points? <laughs> and zero, absolutely zero, which I'm proud of. Which yeah. no, one, I'm actually the slowest road driver in the world, to be honest with you. I just oh, cruise around the place. <laughs> What do you make? Of, what do you make of the rest of Cork drivers? Come on! Ah, <laughs> uh, no. They're, they're, when you compare them to drivers in the rest of the world, Neil, they're fantastic. <laughs> honestly, um, 
you know, God help me for saying this, but in the in in the UK, people don't know how to drive at all. They just uh, they kind of meander. Whereas Ireland, people get on with it, you know. <laughs> so just fine because I could ask you questions all morning. But so after the twenty four hours, you and the other two drivers, how many kilometers will you have actually driven? Do you think? Jeez, I don't know. Actually, I never thought about it. Um, I guess. Well, last year there was 340 laps completed and it was just over 4,500 kilometres. Be that kind of thing? Yeah. That, yeah, it would be that. So we'll, the, the top class, which is called the, the hypercar, it's a, it's a new class that they're bringing in. They do more. Um, which are prototype cars. Yeah, they, they, they'll go, they're quicker, so they'll do more. Um, but yeah, I, I w- would be, yeah, I, we kind of think about it in hours and you, you don't really, it's funny, I was speaking to my teammate and he was, he was saying, you know, oh, damn, you know, it's, I'm going to be gutted when the race is over. And I said, no, because once the race starts, then you're in this kind of thing where the, you're just it's happening you're not making choices the whole the time's going forward and the 24 hours absolutely goes in the flash because all you're doing is driving sleeping eating driving sleeping eating it really is a test of endurance isn't it man versus machine yeah it is listen whatever you do and all the crew as well yeah whatever you do stay safe and have a good race Brilliant, Neil. Thank you very much. Now I will. All Fingers right. crossed. Great chatting with you, Matt. It's a great story. Great chatting. the opportunity to pass. Yeah. So good luck with Le Mans. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Neil. I appreciate it. You got Cheers. it. We'll keep an eye out on Car 55, all right? Do. Perfect. Cheers. All the best. Take care, Matt Griffin. Bye. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818 106. And a lot of texts and an awful lot of emails. Let me just deal with yesterday. Still enjoy listening to your podcast each day. This is from uh, Lillian Sidebottom, who's been living in California well over 30 years now. I'm heading back to Ireland on vacation this summer and I haven't been back in eight years. Frankly, much as I'm looking forward to seeing my family again, I'm also very concerned about what what I'm going to find with regards to antisocial activity on the streets of Cork. I'll be spending time between Galway and Cork. Uh, So being there as a tourist, which I've been looking forward to since I moved to California 30 odd years ago, I hope that this trip will lead to visiting more often over the next years. But I'm also hoping we'll have a safe time. I'll let you know how it goes from a tourist perspective. Thanks for keeping me connected, says Lillian. Absolutely. And you stay connected with me and let me know how your trip goes back here in Ireland as a tourist, or as you say, from a tourist perspective. Regarding the city, the Guardi are coming under increasing pressure. But here are some suggestions to help to uh, relieve the pressure. How about getting the army out in force? How about a canine unit to tackle the scumbags? Changing legislation to teach underage offenders a lesson uh, and a form of prosecution for them. Um, well, wouldn't that wouldn't that involve de, you know lowering the criminal age? Then uh, maybe look at a robot or AI type intervention against these guys. Um, finally, education like physical education classes, teaching kids something like. Uh, I suppose martial arts or some form of self-defense. Morning, I have to disagree with Neil saying there's not enough Garda numbers. The Garda numbers are at their highest since the level of the force's history. It's grown to include a total of 14,307 personnel. Um, There was plenty of them on duty Sunday for the marathon. Uh, Sick to the back teeth of people making excuses for them. Yeah, I know. I, I just, I hate Garda bashing, I really do, because it's been going on for years and years and years, and it's almost as if people suggesting that they don't want to work, when that is not the case at all. You talk about the force having grown to 14,500 or whatever, 
But how much of that has involved court time and, you know, paperwork and court appearances and administration? And I suppose also one of the criticisms that people have is the amount of guardi that are assigned to traffic court duties. Uh, Neil, they're taking the easy pickings. They check for speed and tax and insurance. That's like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, will they ever run into real criminals. Uh, we have drunk tanks, Neil. I was arrested a few months ago and put in a cell, sobered up and was sent home with the warning that I'll be booked formally next time. Can't come on air for obvious reasons, but I was arrested, held overnight. I wasn't causing trouble either. I was just too drunk to walk. Uh, move penny dinners and all of the food banks out of the city centre. What they do is great, but it's just drawing the wrong kind of people. Uh, bring in the cane. A couple of lashes every time will do no harm. Uh, why can't the government buy a large secure farm or rehab centre where you sentence petty crime offenders and drug addiction offenders in this centre? You work on the farm. You attend counselling and courses to get off drugs. You have a laundry service on the campus and you work there to service the laundry of hospitals. You have a load of different trades and apprenticeship courses to give them a sense of purpose and give back something to society. Maybe some of the addicts that get cured might even train as counsellors themselves. You may ask, why do I say this? There is a similar centre in Italy, which is a fantastic success. One or two more. Civil servants should run the police stations and Gardaí should be out policing. That's an incredibly powerful text. It's so short and to the point that admin, paperwork and all sorts of things like that should be done by civilian members of society and the Gardaí should be allowed to get on with policing. Uh, Katrina Toomey Katrina and um, oh, this is interesting, he's talking about penny dinners, enabling a lot of the antisocial behaviour. Don't feed them. They've plenty of money to buy drink to cause chaos. If they feed themselves, they'll have less money for booze, as in get rid of penny dinners. Um, and others are critical, actually, of the food services and those that help. Not many of the patrons are people with drunk, with drink or drug problems. Uh, I go for treatment at Lancaster Hall and going past Corkpenny dinners, there's always people outside drinking cans and bottles. Can't come on air, I have immediate family members in the guards where they are assigned uh, and whatever they do as guardie, it is not their decision. Also, I'm not surprised if they avoid massive brawls, the guardie, when there are only two of them working together, unarmed, walking into fights with people carrying knives. I'm sick of people running down the guards. Everyone is accountable for themselves and their behaviour. And indeed, more importantly, their kids' behaviour, says Jane. So there's lots more like that, and I will come back to them, uh, hopefully between now and midday. But do text 0868104106. Just a quick shout-out and a dig-out, if you like. Mary, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm Thank well. Thank you for speaking to me. Not You're at very all. Good. Not at all. Just to give you a dig-out with regards to a bit of support for the Mixed Ability Rugby World Cup. That's going on at the moment, isn't it? It is down in Musgrave Park. There's a fantastic week of fun sport. The third half is very lively compared to the first and second, but that's very Irish. But I'm really, really looking for support for a Spanish team. Because I'm told that there's 1,100 players from 14 countries playing. Are they all in Cork? Absolutely. Absolutely. Where are they all staying? UCC accommodation. It's been fantastic. The organisation, I'm just stunned by it. I'm just... uh, (laughs) a hanger on but my goodness it's just amazing and what do we mean when we say mixed ability rugby please the people who are playing have abilities of all different levels they may have their ability may be affected by um, intellectual disability physical disability hearing sight 
age, although I wouldn't think that was a problem being in that grade myself. <laughs> so anyone, anyone who wants to join in joins in. But I've been, I've never seen a mixed rugby match, a mixed ability rugby match until this past week. Is it competitive I, or is it for fun? What? Oh, can I tell you? Well, the, the total outcome is probably fun, but there, uh, you ask some of the Cork lads and ladies if they're in it to win. <laughs> <laughs> they are in it to win. <laughs> well, well, everyone likes, but then my team have done really well because it's also part of the competition is the spirit <laughs> of mixed rugby. Is it full contact? Well, sort of, yes. If, if someone is vulnerable, <laughs> you have to see it. You should just come down and have a look. I cannot explain it to you. Because when I thought this first, I thought, I can't, a rugby of all sports, just, I mean, I can understand the other sports that have been on this week. Curling, rowing, boxing did frighten me a little bit. But <laughs> I couldn't understand. And I'm, one could say that I'm interested in Munster in Ireland, which uh-huh. is my, other people would say, a little demented about them, but anyway. <laughs> so I was very curious to see this, and I'm completely smitten. Okay, so, so tell me team, about the Spanish team. They have the no Spanish supporters, team. is it? There's, there's 38 of them here, and Sp- rugby isn't great in Spain. So they anyway, they've 38 of the best people in the world here. But if you take the 15 plus who are on the pitch, no one shouting for them. we're very quiet. And then if you're up against some crowd like the South Americans who are really vocal and there's a crowd of them and we're just a little in need of voices. So do you want um, Spanish people to go support the no, Spanish no, team? I no, want, no, no, no. I want Cork people to come out <laughs> during lunchtime because the men are playing at one. And the girls, the ladies, are playing at 2.30. Now, normally at home, they play together as a mixed team. But here in the tournament, this is the first time ladies have a mixed ability rugby tournament. Good. This is so and so we have Cork people on the sideline shouting, vamos, vamos. Absolutely. Uh, indus, indus. Now, my team is the Ferrari of the team here. <laughs> <laughs> of, the, of the teams, right? Yes, they're the Ferraris. But um, they're they're all. The other thing that's really would be fantastic. We've great Cork teams. We have Sunday's Well Rebels. We've Ballancolic Trailblazers. They're up from Bantry, the Bantry Bay team, yeah. And half the world and its mother come to support them, as you would expect at a world tournament. Who are Spain so, playing at lunchtime? Oh goodness! Now you would ask me a difficult. Oh, I do know. It's an English team derby. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so we want Derby. we want Cork people at Musgrave Park at what time? At one o'clock. Now you can get lunch because we've loads of vans with all selections of whatever you were having yourself. <laughs> uh, if you want to stay on then for the ladies' team, we've also got the third half, which is the bar, the bar, the bar. Uh, <laughs> music, entertainment. It's just a <laughs> fabulous day out. It's free. You can park across the road from Sunday's Well in the old CMP area, which is uh, the fun fun fair, fun trek, fun whatever yeah. ground. Yeah, Funderland. So yeah. park, Funderland, that's the word. Yeah. So the parking is free. You walk across the road into the stadium. You can pick up your chips and whatever you want. Sit in the posh seats in, in Mulsgrave Park, the opportunity. And you can shout for the 
Spanish team who are just brilliant. I can right. tell you okay. how good they well, are. The shout out is out there. Happy to oblige. One o'clock today, Musgrave Park. No cost involved. Free parking. We couldn't ask for anything more than that. Good luck with it. Great let me know. Let me know how the good. match goes, will you? And hopefully, if people do. are listening, they get out there for a free hour or two today. One o'clock, Musgrave Park. Fair play, Mary. No, it's on tomorrow as well. It's on tomorrow as well. You can call any time. My team were just on at that time. But right. It's on from today at twelve, and it's on from tomorrow. The finals from twelve. All Thank right. you so much All for the best. Take Thank care. You. Bye. Take care. Take care. Bye Back now. after Bye. the break. Text 0868104106. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818104106 Red FM. Okay, not too much left, but I did want to do uh, something that I came across earlier in the week. My daughter sent me the most amazing video of uh, Shauna Winnett, who was on the streets of Cork busking and singing. And it was just incredible to sit and listen to the talent. And I'm always mad keen to dig out talent on Lisa and give them an opportunity to shine. So, in the middle of our leaving certificate, Shauna's popped in. Good morning. Morning. How are the exams going? Good so far. Jump um, in a little bit there. You're you're totally laid back there. <laughs> what what you have yesterday? English. I did the English paper one. Have you an exam this afternoon? Yeah. Are you nervous? A little. Was you more nervous about the exam or here? Here. Well done. Fair play to you. And the busking. Tell me about it. How often are you doing it? Every second day, but I only started like two weeks ago. Go away. I mean, the video that I saw was incredible. Is it something that you'd like to do professionally? Yeah. You have a serious voice. Is that trained or is it just natural? I was in voice works for a few years. Were you? I yeah. thought it might have come from your mammy or your daddy. <laughs> ah. Well done. It's fantastic. And would you make a few bob when you're out there? Yeah. Uh, not as much as like... No, but you're also yeah. training, of course. Yeah. Okay, all right. So, I invited you in here because you brought your backing track because I wanted people to hear the talent that's on Lisa. What are you going to do for us? Uh, when I look at you by Miley Cyrus. Okay, and that mic's okay for you and the headphones and everything? Yep. Okay, I'll start it. Were you ready? Yeah. Here we go. Everybody needs a song A beautiful melody When the nights are long Cause there is no guarantee That this life is easier when my Forgiveness I see the truth You love me for who I am Like the stars hold the moon 
right there where they belong And I know I'm not alone here when my world is falling apart And there's no light to break up the dark days when I, I Appear just like a dream to me, just like kaleidoscope colors that cover me. All I need, every breath that I breathe. Don't you know you're you pick such a difficult song oh my god and when people hear you singing on the street they must stop in astonishment do yeah, they they stop and record do they yeah yeah and that's why it's flying on social isn't it mm-hmm. i mean there's a clip of there's a song with what, what 12 14 15000 12000 does that yeah. blow your mind yeah do you think to yourself boy i must have some kind of talent because <laughs> yeah. it just sounds so natural and it's come so easy to you that's all the practice that's all yeah it's hard work isn't yeah. it it looks easy but it's not would you practice a lot yeah like, you have a fabulous voice I sing all the time around the house do you just every time there's nothing better to be doing in the house than singing beat shouting and roaring doesn't it yeah happy house so after the leaving sir what are you going to do um probably focus on singing for a while yeah yeah and what's the plan do you have a plan not exactly Probably just sticking to busking for now. Yeah, I'd see somebody coming in. Where's that? There was a text came in there, somebody inviting you to take part in some gig or some series of gigs. Be interested in gigs and things like that? Yeah. Yeah, because that's where you'll cut your craft. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So, back to the books this afternoon. There's a, a fam- there's a Formoy Family Fun Day coming up in June. Uh, Elsa from the Live Music Promotions Department of it, wondering whether they'd like to, to go offer paid gig. They yeah. even pay you. Yeah. How bad? Being paid to do something you love is a dream, isn't it? It is. So what exam have you today? Uh, my English paper too. I don't bother. You'll knock that out of the park mm-hmm. like the singing, won't you? Thanks so much for coming in, Shauna. You're a great talent. Appreciate it. When are you busking again? Um, Probably in about a week. I'm waiting right. on a new speaker. And do you, a new loudspeaker? Yeah. Really? Did you blow the last one? Yeah. <laughs> Get Dad to buy it. Yeah. Dad! Cough up. <laughs> Dad's in the studio as well. What's your dad's name? 
John. Okay, so where will you be on Patrick Street? Is it Patrick Street or Win- Winthrop Street? Um, or? Just by the Savoy. Good spot. Good pitch. Good luck with the exams. Thanks for calling Thank in. You. Okay, and we'll keep a close eye on the one and only Shauna Winnett. Text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 0818104106. Quite an amount of text coming in on different topics over the past uh, couple of days. Didn't get to all of them. Can I just mention that we did submit a freedom of information request to Cork City Council. I had hoped to come back to this. You know, with regards to the Freemasons, I don't know whether they're going to be gifted the piece of land at Bishop Lucy Park, whether they're going to pay for it or whatever. But I was just curious as to, are there any current sitting city councillors who are members of the Freemason Society of Ireland? So that's a question that we put, because I was curious if there was, wouldn't there be a conflict of interest ahead of the vote with regards to giving the Freemasons a piece of Bishop Lucy Park? So we put in the Freedom of Information request to Cork City Council yesterday, and they came back and said they have already made a decision on our Freedom of Information question. Are there any city councillors members of the Masons? And they said that they are refusing it. They said, we do not consider this to be a valid request of uh, under Section 11 of the Freedom of Information Act. They said that they have uh, assessed it, looked in it, and they wish to advise that they will not in any way, shape or form be handing over that information. Now, they make a good... They make a good argument as to why they don't. Uh, they just regard it as not being um, a question that would be, um, I suppose, that would be under the freedom of information guidelines, if you like. So I'm none the wiser as to whether or not city councillors are members of the Masons. I would have thought if they were, they would have disclosed it ahead of any kind of a vote on giving or selling land to the Freemasons. So that's the latest on that. But I hope to pick up on that story in the morning. For now, though, it's midday. Uh, have a good day. Our lines will stay open. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.